My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Looks like we're doing okay. So we'll go in three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD podcast. It's that time of year. It's the last live show of the year. 2022 has come and gone. Hopefully for a lot of you, including myself, 2023 will be a better year, a year of growth, a year of learning from what we have these past couple of years because they've been a crazy bunch of years. And these live shows, you know, I want to bring these guys into you so that you can talk to them, learn about them, meet them, and really get a feel. So I can't think of a better way to end the year in these shows than with my friend Dave Wink Winkley. Everyone knows him. He's a retired Navy SEAL. We're going to get going with this. It almost didn't happen today, but we're here, man. We made it. All right. You ready? Can you hear me? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. Here we go. So let's talk about you getting down here today. You explaining everything that happened. You were on a camping trip. Now you got down here. We got the show ready. We were a little nervous from the beginning. What happened? I just took the uh, kiddo out camping with a buddy of mine and his two girls went out to Anzaborego in the desert. Did a lot of off-roading and uh, developed a radiator leak somewhere up in there that I couldn't get a hand on. So uh, it was going to be touch and go whether we we're going to make it up the pass uh, through a storm to get kind of out of the mountain area. And uh, we, we made it. We're here. Technical difficulties on the computers as always. And then uh, the lovely wife came in and was able to be like, here, get out of the way. Let me get this for you. So, yeah, we made it. We, well, I wasn't going to miss this. All right, let's talk about this year. Let's let's talk about everything that you've done this year and what you kind of have projected to start out next year. Because I know you're doing a couple different things now, not just the charity. Oh man, yeah. So still working my regular job, teaching close quarters combat, preaching, uh, mentorship, leadership, all that kind of fun stuff, which is just absolutely a blast. I love doing that. It uh, it's truly my happy spot when I'm teaching you know close quarters combat to law enforcement or whoever it may be, and just knowing that certain things I may be able to tell them might help save some lives, uh, making sure they're doing it the most tactically efficient way, the most proficient and the most tactically sound because not every, uh, not everybody is, that's for sure. Uh, and then, yeah, doing the rugby coaching still for Girls Rugby Inc. I've been coaching there for, oh, six or seven seasons now. And we just wrapped up our season. We have another one coming up in April. And uh, that's been a lot of fun just, you know, mentoring these young girls, teaching them a new sport. And I always tell folks, like, imagine teaching a sport to – 20 children ages uh, first grade through eighth grade that have never seen the sport before. Not one, not, not once have they ever seen rugby, but now you're teaching them the game. And then within two weeks, you're playing your first game and, and it works. It's weird. I love it. It's, it's an interesting, you know, thing that you do with the rugby. Uh, you have always told me ever since we've talked to each other, that's your favorite part of who you are is that mentor, that coach, the, the dad being there. Can we talk a little bit about that? Because in all the guests that we bring on, sometimes it, it, it is a, 
a bad situation where they don't learn until later on to be that dad in life, to be that husband in life. And when they really latch onto it, it everything kind of changes for them. So can we talk about your mind state going into that, what you get away from that, and then what you think your daughter and your wife get away from that? I'm not really sure when I first got involved, what I was getting into. Um, it was really, I was walking my daughter to school one day, a neighbor guy, a neighbor husband type guy was walking with his daughter and they were tossing the rugby ball. And I was like, what do you got there? He's like rugby. I'm like, yeah, I know that I got that. Uh, what are you doing? Tossing with your girl? He's like, Oh, she plays for girls rugby Inc. I was like, no, checked it out. Looked through the principles they want to apply to these young kids' lives. You know, it's very integral to, the program, you know, whether the, you know, we have these buzzwords that are, you know, leadership and, um, you know, fair play and inclusiveness and all these different things. And it just really struck a chord with me. And I signed up that moment after I got my daughter off, I'm like, I'm setting up for this. And that was, you know, six or seven seasons ago and it's still going strong. Um, but I think the girls get a lot out of it, which is my favorite part, you know, whether it's just the athletic, you know, capability of learning a new sport, you know, you see these girls grow and grow into becoming, you know, pretty dominant athletes and granted they're fourth, fifth, sixth grade, you know, so they're not, uh, not ready for the Olympic team yet, but <clears throat> it's amazing. I'm watching them grow as players. And my daughter included, you know, she started playing in first grade and she's in fourth now and playing. And she just, I see the progression every time, you know, whether she can catch the ball better, throw it better or field recognition, knowing where the ball should be moving to and how to get the players there. And then the other side of that's the leadership. You know, we kind of designate a leader each game, that's, you know, a captain of sorts that's in charge of getting them in the right formations, whether it's going to be on defense or, or offense, attacking the ball. So um, not only learning that part, but they're getting the other side, this mentorship. Um, one of our words of the week was respect. And that one was kind of key for me. You know, it's something that everyone should be taught at an early age, early and often, of course. And one of the things that I did was made these girls line up. I was like, you know how to shake hands with an adult and introduce yourself? And they're like, no. I'm like, great, line up. Like, stood in front of me, put my hand out. I'm like, hi, I'm coach Dave. What's your name? And you know, some of my shy ones were just like, uh, I'm like, Hey, this, this is what we're working on. This is respect. You're showing me respect. I'm showing you respect. And it's something you're going to do through your whole life. So made them all come through, shook each one of their hands, said, nice to meet you. I'm like next. So instead of just concentrating on rugby or athleticism, we're talking about other things in the program that are far more important than learning how to play rugby. Absolutely. My big question to it is, though, you did a lot of training as a SEAL, too. You were in charge of a lot of training there, too. What's the difference, and what do you think the similarities are? Because I know that they're very vastly different worlds, but I think that there's a lot of stuff that you pull from that world into this new one. 100%. I obviously, um, there are a lot of differences between coaching girls rugby and then teaching SEALs how to do close quarters combat, but there are a lot of overlaps, too, as you can imagine, but... Uh, the way the difference is mainly how you react. I mean, you're teaching adult seals. That's going to be such a different ball game, but there's, there's more to it when I'm actually coaching the girls. I don't know. It's just, they're, they're such an empty vessel with, with no knowledge or, or not a lot of knowledge and just pouring it in, pouring it in trying to see what sticks, what techniques work to get their, get their attention to get them to stop grab assing, whatever it is. Just, you know, you're constantly changing techniques to get your message across whether I'm teaching them about our words of the week or if I'm teaching them about rugby or reading the pitch or anything like that, um, where seals as they're coming through, not an empty vessel of sorts. They've already been schooled in this sometimes, you know, six, seven, eight times, probably more times than I have. Um, so I can fine tune them 
where these girls are coming in to play a sport they've never seen in their life for the first time, that's, you know, it's uh, much more difficult. And I, but I have a lot of room to work with and it's great when you grab the team's attention and you make, they're just like, Oh, like, this is really cool. I really enjoy what we're doing here. That's not every practice. And it's not every single moment of the practice. There's drudgery sometimes where kids don't want to, you know, they're not participating or they're infighting or whatever it is. But by and large, once you grab that attention, you hold them and then you get a new drill worked on or a new rule, you know, for working on line outs, um, you know, where you, where the ball goes out of bounds in rugby and you have to throw it in. It's a new skill set and just seeing like kind of the eyes light up and they're like, Oh, it's a new thing. It's a new tactic. It's something different. I'm like, yes. Like, it's just fun to watch their motivation just increase. And then it all pays off on game day. We're with the seals, you know, they're going to be deployed overseas. I'm not going to see them again for six, seven, eight months. They're going to come back through the cycle. I may get to talk to a few guys like, Hey, how was our training uh, in relation to what you're doing overseas? And were we, were we pertinent? Were we tactically efficient? Were we doing the right things by you? But I barely get feedback, but with girls rugby, it's feedback every Saturday after the game. Well, I was thinking about it, and here was my big question that came into my mind. You come from a world where every day is an interview. You would agree with that, right? All those days, every single day, you've got something to prove to somebody. So with the Mm -hmm. world and how it is, and I have three daughters, and we've talked about it on the show, with this world that we're in now where everyone gets a participation trophy, everyone is told they're great at it, there's no better player than another player until you get up a little further into the select leagues and stuff like that. How does a guy like you that comes from that world where you constantly have to prove who you are because no one gives a shit who you are to this world and still ride that fine line? Because these girls might not be ready for it yet, or they might be. Yeah, it's interesting because we don't do, um, there are no set teams per se. I coach in the town I live in, and I may have between eight and 20 girls. Another team uh, here in San Diego will have four girls. So it's not like my team plays, you know, against another team. We all show up from all the collection of girls rugby in San Diego, and we meet on the same pitch, and they get divided out by height, height, weight, age, and by, uh, you know, skill level. And so they're not really playing this competitive sport. And, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm like, no, it's kind of like participation trophies or, or where's the competition. Uh, and the girls even ask for it. Like, can we keep score? I'm like, you can do what you want. I'm not keeping score as a referee. You do what you want. Um, so the girls are actually craving the competition. Our particular program doesn't really have a competitive side, but we're not the last ones here. And we're only taking kids through eighth grade rugby anyway. So when they leave our program, they can go to another group and, and, and get that energy, that excitement. And I was reticent not to have that, that component. There's no score. It's not competitive. You know, that felt a little weak. Um, but once I saw the games and how much fun they're having, it, it, it didn't really matter. They're still competitive without having to say, ha, we won, you didn't, or whatever it is. Um, so in, in the end, both teams I'm refereeing, they come in together, you know, one, two, three girls rugby. And it's, uh, you know, that we have, you know, hot dogs and hamburgers afterwards. So it's a, it's a different thing. And maybe as this group progresses and I'm coaching, if they want to go to tackle now, it's like, okay, now we're going to do the competitive side of things. All right. Let's talk a little bit about your career. As I was going back today and kind of going through stuff that we talked about last time, let's talk about your years in 
the differences that changed while you were in, and then uh, as you left the Navy, um, what did you see in the end? Because I, I, I watched a, a specific question that we were talking about, and uh, you said that the Navy does a the, – the SEAL teams do a pretty good job of getting guys out to kind of go into their civilian life. Um, but we've heard from numerous amounts of people, law enforcement and everything, that, that the right stuff isn't there. So first let's talk about your career, where you did some time at, and what you learned, kind of the life lessons to carry forward into what you're doing now. Sure. Um, you know, I graduated class 231, and that was October of 2000. Uh, first command was SEAL Team 1. Uh, 9-11 happened during my first platoon. And from there, I did almost 10 years, went over to SEAL Team 3 for a bit, traded, worked close quarters combat in the assaults, um, went to SEAL Team 5 for Ramadi, uh, which is, you know, pretty, pretty eventful place. And then, uh, you know, got to go to Afghanistan with 3, back over to 1. That was my last pump there. Um, I don't know, talking about life lessons is just almost so vast, the, the sheer number of things you learn going through that, you know, whether it's learning politics, because it's part of every bureaucracy, it's, you know, learning how to lead men, the, the tactics, the, the big things you see, having some humanity when you're overseas, you know, when you see certain things, it's like, it's so vast to like pinpoint certain things that I learned or I picked up or I, or I carry on with. I think it's just, it changes who you are, not entirely, but it sure does give you a unique perspective on the world. I think that's what everything did was change perspective and to how I look at everything without those experiences in Ramadi and um, a little bit in Fallujah and then Afghanistan, I'd be, I'd be a different person and then maybe not for the better. Well, okay. So let's talk about that. So let's talk about how it changes your perspective on the world and with everything you've seen, because just like in law enforcement and stuff, you've seen the worst of humanity. Uh, Mm -hmm. You've seen how bad it can get around the world, no matter what it, whatever corner of the world you may be in Mm -hmm. when you say that it changed your perspective you wanted to be a seal before 9-11 happened you wanted to do those things before all of that so it's hard for me to understand how it changed your perspective because you always wanted to do that you always wanted to travel around and have that mission in life so how did it change and what were you thinking of before because we've talked about that and i don't i don't know from hearing your story that 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 much changed about you you were always kind of a guy that was thinking in every angle that he could outside the box so let's talk about how it changed you sure and, and yeah I, you know there's not this uh momentous shift in in who i am as a person like i have been always wanting to do this job i, I i've always looked at different angles and, and how to figure things out um, especially with regards with people, you know, people are, uh, as you know, from law enforcement dealing with every person is going to be different, your approach, your tactics, all that. Um, I think it's just really took off blinders to the world in a way where you kind of see humanity for what it is, the good and the bad. And I think you accept it for what it is, the good and the bad. It's just one of the things you're like, yeah, this is, this is what humans do. You know, when people try to put, uh, human beings too high up on the totem pole and the, and the cycle of animals and plants and everything else, I'm just like, we're just another animal. We're just high functioning and we're destructive and we're loving and we do all these. Yeah. We just do all these wonderful things and we do all also the worst things in the world. Um, so I, maybe that's some of the perspective that was brought to me when you're like, see some very tender things overseas. You know, I remember you know, you, you blow down a, a door to a person's house and uh, you know, there's a small child there and you know, you're 
you know, as soon as you're done clearing the house, you come back and like want to like give them a, you know, a chem light so they can have a toy or, you know, try to give them little, little funny waves or make faces at them, you know, and the ones weren't, they weren't scared of the chem light uh, really appreciated. And it's like, you know, it's like humans are humans. So whether these guys were, you know, bad guys, uh, and we went into their house, they still got these little kids that are, they're just kids, just like mine and yours, you know, no matter where they're at. Do you think it hardened you? Oh, that's a good question. I, I'm sure in some ways, yes. Um, uh, you know, I went on a honeymoon with my wife, uh, you know, 13 plus years ago and we we're in Alexandria, Egypt, and we we're going out into town to go see some catacombs and some things like that. And there's a dead body in the canal and a dead donkey. And, you know, people are pointing at that. I'm like, yep, dead body. That's what it is. All right, let's go. So maybe I wouldn't have had that same reaction uh, from, you know, younger me that hadn't seen so much. Uh, and I don't think it's, it's not callousness in a way. It's just accepting what reality really is. Like that's, that's what happens. We're in the third world. Like, no, you know, unless the person's family comes around, that body might sit there for a long time. Well, and I, to take it a step further, I think that in that arena of work, I think that you build up a skin. You can joke about things that people normally wouldn't joke about or people might find offensive joking about, but it's an almost a, uh, a medical reference. You're trying to heal yourself in some way or make your brain not understand exactly what's going on. You would agree with that, right? Yeah, it's a defense mechanism for sure. The dark humor, you know, you work with EMTs, paramedics, police officers, everybody has that same dark humor. It's, you know, it's a... It's ubiquitous nowadays when you talk about dark humor and first responders and military. Um, and it is a defense mechanism to try to not, uh, not see all the horrors and let it affect you, uh, later in life or even immediately. So yeah, we always, we, you know, we'd crack jokes in the middle of gunfights. We'd be tossing movie quotes, just, you know, just trying to, uh, uh, we had a great diehard movie reference in Ramadi. We, uh, shot four Carl Gustafs at a batch of about 25 guys that were on the other side of a, a building from us. And we got the third Gustav out and the OIC keys up and does a diehard quote. He's like, I'm not impressed. Hit them again. It's like, damn it, Hans, they've had enough. Let them retreat. <laughs> and like, so we're just, and then of course we launched the rocket and, you know, kill more dudes. And uh, it's just that kind of fun stuff that, you know, it's, it's funny to say, but uh, war is a lot of fun when it's going right. It's fun. And, and it's, it's weird to say. And your, your viewers would be like, what the hell? Well, <laughs> I was just about to ask you, can you go into a little more depth about that? Because a lot of people that have been on the show don't necessarily use the term that it's fun, but definitely a lot of them are like, I liked being there. I loved being a part of that, that, that page of history that, I mean, it goes into so many different layers when you look at it and you say, I was a part of that. So can you talk about that a little when people think, yeah, it, I don't know if necessarily the viewers here would think that, but people in general might think, wow, that's weird to say war is fun to be in. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And I, and I don't take back that, uh, that statement because it, it is true. Um, when everything's going your way, I mean, like you're riding in fast helicopters and you're scraping the deck through Afghanistan, through some valleys, or you're, you're doing a fast rope on a building on in Iraq. Like those are fun things. Like people would pay a lot of money just to go out and do that. And then we get to shoot big guns. I get to shoot rockets and, I have all these, you know, multi-million dollar, multi-billion dollar aircraft at my disposal. It, that is just a blast. And even mid gunfight, again, as long as things are, you know, going well and, you know, you're, you're accomplishing your objective, you're like, you can't help but smile. It's just a good time. Like, you know, I was an explosive breacher forever. 
And I always joked about the first time I go and you know put a charge on a door, like I'm going to be giggling the whole way because it's like I've trained so hard for this. I really want to blow down a door. <laughs> so it's like walking up to the house like, <laughs> hold on. So, and, uh, <laughs> and you have, let's, let's not scrape over that so easily. You have over 10,000 explosive breaches in your career. Yeah, not all of those would be me doing them. Some of those would be me as the RSO, the range safety officer, getting that done. Um, I know back in the day when I first started, it's like you you log every shot. You know, you're, every single shot you do, you log. And after doing a lot, you're like, I, I don't need to do that anymore. So I truly lost count on how many we did overseas on the objective. Some of them were loopholes, blasting a tiny loopholes so our snipers could get shots through um, different angles. Uh, so some of them would be that. A lot of them were just straight up exterior door, large um, large charge, you know, strip charge or, or like explosive cutting tape or something like that. And just blasting it down. And that was, yeah, but I've, I've definitely been around 10,000 or so blasts. I had to report that to the VA when they're like, Oh, how many blasts have you been around? I'm like I did the math and it's over 10,000, which they're like, <laughs> yeah, you see the expression on your caseworker's face. There's like, and, uh, you kind of like, what, is that a lot? Did I win? Did, did, did I break it? What, what, what happened? <laughs> And they're like, yeah, like most folks don't come in and say they've been around 10,000 shots. Well, and, and there's a reason they don't come in and say that. That's a good point to bring up. A lot of people won't say that because they're worried about what will happen on the backside of that. True. Uh, I was worried about certain things like that. You know, when you speak to the VA for the first time, I'm like, you know, is this going to affect my ability to own guns later in life? Or is this going to, um, you know, who knows, make it more, more difficult for me to be employed or something like that. But, uh, the process was actually pretty straightforward and pretty open. So I, I really enjoyed the, the process, which you won't hear a lot of people say going through the VA process, but they were knowledgeable and they knew what they're talking about. And they knew when they were dealing with someone who had been around a lot of blasts, what that kind of means and, and how they rate you for, for your compensation. All right. With that many blasts, with that much training behind you, with you training that many people, does it ever become boring or does it ever become, do you ever become complacent? And I, and this is a hard one to answer because mm -hmm. you have to say it about yourself. So do you ever become complacent in that 10,000 blast? I think there's definitely a time where that uh, can sneak up on you. Um, and one example would be, I had just taken over a new um, close quarters combat slash breaching crew. And these guys were running a little fast and loose compared to the way I run things. And I just assumed they were doing all the proper procedures and they were as OCD as I am when it comes to explosive work. And I remember trying to get a head count, you know, I was giving a thumbs up down the side to make sure we were good there. And the blast went and it traveled down the walls of the interior of the house, exited onto my left side, which was my left ear and just put me down on the ground. I'm just like, Oh, holy shit. Like I can't, like that could have been way worse. Like, you know, I could have been entering the house. They didn't have a full head count. It was just one of those things like I was complacent because I just assumed these guys were doing things the way I wanted them to. And that changed it right after that. And, and, you know, there were other times where it's like, you wouldn't expect an issue to come up during a certain evolution. So you're not looking at the people doing the things like we're working through just putting a basic slap charge on the door, reel back 30 feet, uh, reel and detonate it pretty straightforward. And then I had a guy off to my left detonate the entire thing in his hand. Oh, I was shit. like, uh, it was thankfully the cap in it with the blasting cap. You keep positive control. You keep a hold of it. It doesn't fly around. It's the most 
um, volatile portion of the explosive train. You can't treat it with a ton of respect. And thankfully, he was not listening and did not have control because he had control. He would have lost his, his fingers, at least, if not the whole hand. So those few events were kind of those things like, hey, we even on an evolution where I should be focusing on these guys, this guy over here still has explosives in his hand. I need to be focused other places. So um, I don't know if that was a complacency thing or a prioritization of my uh, my RSO skills. You know, I, I was like, oh, maybe I need to reprioritize, have more guys here and I can be out here to answer questions and make sure something like this doesn't happen again. Why do you think that happens? Why is it because they're so long? Is it because you know your trade? And some people would say you never master the trade ever. In, in a lot of different jobs, you never master the trade. But does your brain sometimes fool you into, I think I know I can fix pretty much any problem or anything that happens? Yeah, absolutely. It's just, uh, you know, and this is more centered around the range safety officers who are working with CQC, um, urban operations, all the assault groups where you see the same runs day in, day out. Uh, you know, it's probably going to be six in the morning until sometime at night. And you do that for three weeks straight. And then you get another group and you do it again. And you do that eight to 10 times a year. So it's just this repetitive nature where you're like, yep, I, this is, this always happens like this. This is what's going to happen here, you know, and maybe something's going to uh, lapse a little bit because you've seen it so many times. And that was also one of my pet peeves was like, Hey, we've seen this a lot. Let's make sure we're doing the right things and get, I'd get another set of eyeballs in there. It's like, Hey, come on in. I want you to just watch what we're doing and see if there's something we're missing. And that was one of my favorite things to do is just like get another set of eyes. It'd be a buddy of mine. That's like not in a workup. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm at the, I'm at the kill house. You want to come out and just watch. And then he would have some, some valid points. I'm like, Oh, thanks for the fresh set of eyes. Cause that's what it is. You just, it's, you're just doing it so often you get lulled into a, a false sense sometimes. And Another I know the law enforcement guys have that problem. I'm sure that's a problem when it's like day in and day out, you're pulling over somebody or you're, you know, you're serving a warrant and you're like, yeah, we, we've been over here in this neighborhood, you know, a hundred times. And then it's that one time that something happens. You're like, wow, that's catastrophic. And we weren't ready. Yeah. And, and, and that's the whole thing. But you, you mentioned an interesting point when you talk about that, when you say, I loved having a second set of eyes, I would call a friend, tell him, Hey, I'm over at the shoot house, come over. In that world and in, in the law enforcement world, first responder world, there's a lot of alpha going on. And you don't see that a lot where people are willing to be, I don't know if the word's vulnerable, but at least tell someone, hey, maybe you could help me out here. Everyone feels like they can get it done on their own, that no one could do it better than them. So can you talk a little bit about how you worked through that and how you made that work for you? Sure. I mean, a lot of that is just ego driven, you know, guys are just like, Oh, I, I'm, I've got this down. I don't need a fresh set of eyes. And I've seen it with law enforcement. I've traded in the past when I've gone out and worked with different SWAT teams and they're like, yeah, this is what we do. And this is what we always do. I'm like, okay, let me show you a way we do it. And just use that for a tool in the toolbox. And you just see that the ego wall just comes up like, no, this is what we do. This is how we execute it. I'm like, okay, it's not the most safe. Let's, let's talk through this. Let's work through this. Let me convince you. And if you don't want it, don't take it. But I'm telling you, I can make you better, faster, stronger, and better at your job and safer. Um, one, if you just like drop the ego. Uh, I had a master chief who was an amazing guy, uh, you know, dev group type, um, 
came out for one of his last tours at trade at where I was at teaching CQC and I'd walk into his office, you know, in a huff about something, you know, that I want it done or whatever it was and come in there and I'm like, Master Chief, let me talk to you real quick. He's like, before you speak, he's like, take your ego out of this and then tell me what you want. I was just like, shit. All right. I'm out. See you later. Thanks. And it was purely like my own ego getting in the way of what we needed to accomplish. I thought that was a great thing. And I stole that line from him. Now, when I go work with a law enforcement, I work with some guys from Vancouver, the, the Mounties, and just, you know, looking at new things or looking at other tactics that aren't necessarily theirs. I'm like, Hey, just take your ego out of it. When you're looking at this, like if it works, it works. It doesn't matter if you haven't done it before, like let's learn from this. And if it doesn't work exactly for your niche of law enforcement, um, you know, up in Canada or wherever, then great. Take a little bit of it. But the first thing is just to drop the ego. Uh, some groups I've worked with have been very egocentric and just didn't want to hear a thing about any other ways. And they're not the best teams around. The best teams around are the one that are like, Hey man, whatever you got, send it our way. I'm like, okay. I don't know if that answered your question fully, but that's, uh, to me, it's the ego is the biggest, the biggest issue when guys are trying to learn something new. And like you said, you know, if I bring somebody out, I'm making myself vulnerable and you know, my ego can handle that. If somebody comes out like, Oh, wink, like, you know, you're not RSOing this section well, or, you know, your guys aren't, um, you know, one of your dudes in the back is eating a sandwich while he's RSOing. I'm like, fuck, I didn't know that. All right, cool, man. Thank you. I, I think it's healthy and wise to, you know, let your underbelly out like hey man look 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 everywhere look at everything we're doing and give me some notes so you're saying uh sleep on your back that's they say you're the most vulnerable when you uh yeah. give the belly so here's my question to that though when you talk about that and you you say ego there's a lot i think goes into that though and not just ego i think a lot that goes into it is people think that you'll People think that you'll think that they don't know what they're doing. And that's not ego to me. That is that they're not as well trained for the situation or whatever it may be. How do we work around that? Because you just said take your ego out. Okay, so we're past that one now. So now how do we become vulnerable and let people tell us and and maybe get into us for some stuff and still be able to accomplish the mission? I think some of that could be traced back to how bureaucracies run. Uh, you know, big, big city law enforcement. You guys know how bureaucracies work. Military, you know how bureaucracies work. And especially in the military these days, you're in a no-fail environment. You know, the second there's a failure, like that guy's out of here and so are the next three under his command. Um, it's not a healthy way to do business in this zero-fail type thing. So I think if you were removing the ego adequately, which some people may say they are removing it and they don't really, because it's, it's, a, it's a harder thing to do. But if you can create an environment where failure is okay, and that's something that alpha personalities, SWAT teams, narcotics officers, SEAL teams, everybody, you don't do well. You don't say, hey, it's okay to fail. You don't do that. What are you, mad? That's not something you do. But if you're like, hey, let's look at the way you're doing your procedures, and let's take away any fear of reprisal from your chain of command, because that's the only way you're going to get better, you know, it's it's funny when people talk about Ukraine, not to go into a side rant, but like, oh my God, how did Russia, you know, fail miserably and get stymied by this small force? It's like, well, everyone lied to him. At least in my opinion, everyone's like, hey, you know, generals, how are we doing? Is this going to take long? No, a couple of days. 
we'll be in and out, no problem. And they overinflated their own capabilities. And because their fear of reprisal, no one would go to, you know, to the, to Putin and be like, man, no, this isn't going to work. We're not really ready for this. We're not geared. We're not equipped. We're not trained because that guy would be dead in our environment. That guy would be fired. If you ask, if you ask an assault team leader, whether he's on a SWAT team or something else, you're like, Hey, are you guys capable of doing this? Are you guys capable of working through urban terrain after a shooting in Dallas? Are you guys capable of that? And if the answer is no, okay. It's more, let's re- give a reprisal to that. But if you can remove that reprisal and be like, let's truly find our vulnerabilities without fear of reprisal, then you're going to open up more. Ego's gone. Fear of reprisal's gone. Now let's truly focus on our, uh, you know, chink in the armor or red zones where we can't quite understand what we're doing. Now we start to work on those. That's what you have to do. And I haven't met too many organizations that are like, Hey, failure's great. No problem. And I truly think that you learn your most from your failures. And I tell my rugby girls that I tell, uh, people that come through my training. I'm like, your best teacher is your failures. If you breeze through this house, it's a massive success. That means you didn't learn anything. First off, your Russian accent, flawless. Uh, how you just said that, absolutely flawless. <laughs> with you talking, and by the way, in this kind of environment with this live show, you can go down any tangent you want. And, and I wanted to talk to you about Russia because that has happened since the last time we talked. And I want to talk to you about some other threats that have popped up in the world and, and your thoughts on them, having been in that environment and now stepping away and having a worldview but also having nothing to do with that worldview. So before you, you could say, oh, I don't like that and be part of the solution. Now you just kind of have to step back and go, I don't like that and I don't like that. And that's it. Let's talk about Russia a little bit in that. I want to point out something with your last answer though, where you said that there's no reprisal for the failure and that I'm cheapening that up and making a very short answer of it. But I think that's where a lot of people worry is no punishment or no reprisal because they're not worried about necessarily punishing that failure. They're worried about being punished for not punishing that failure. Yeah, that's extremely wise. That's, that's exactly correct. It's the, the next person up the chain of command is worried about what the next person up the chain of command is going to think. So they make, uh, you know, a knee jerk reaction. And we see it all the times in these massive bureaucracies that we work in and, it's, a, it's no way to run a railroad. So with with Russia, with Ukraine, and with these threats that are popping up, do you see any end for that? Because they, they put out a quote the other day that we have now given more aid. Excuse me. We have given more aid to the Ukraine than we did in Afghanistan for over like 20 years. We haven't committed necessarily troops to it. What are your thoughts on it? What is the end goal you see in it? And how do we stop injecting ourselves into that until it's necessary? Yeah. And, you know, like I think last time we spoke, I was like, I'm not a a strategist. I'm a tactician. Right. You know, even though I slept at a holiday in last night, you know, I'm not a (laughs) not a strategist per se by trade. You know, I I like the small unit tactics. Um, Right. I do. Don't I don't mind weighing in because I am, you know, keep up with current events and things like that. But it's anyone's guess now how it's going to end, but I don't think it's going to end with Russia being successful. They may be able to annex a little bit of territory, but I think they're going to have issues 
the entire time they're there. And slowly it's going to be a war of attrition on the Russian side, not the Ukrainian side. Uh, it's, it's very, it's a very interesting conflict and it's got a lot of history to it. But what I find amazing was that they were able to hold for so long and just whittle away their force to the fact they're like grabbing men in Moscow and they're like, Oh, you're in the army now. Guess what? And you know, (laughs) this is, it, it reminds me of Stalingrad. It's like, here's a rifle and your buddy has the ammo. See you later. Have a good time. They're barely even training these troops just to be able to try to win through sheer numbers, which is Russia's MO and always has been, you know, their tanks always suck. They're, they just have a lot more of them, you know, pretty much all of their things, the AK-47, that's, that's an okay rifle, but they have a ton of them. Um, it's just, that's their MO is to just flood it with numbers. And yeah, so where it goes from there, uh, I hope doesn't create this long stalemate. And it's protracted thing, even though it's already protracted long enough. But I am pleased that I think we're past the most dangerous point. There was a point there where it's like any day now, an airliner could be shot down from the Russian side or a errant missile from Russia lands in Poland. And we see it cascade into the new world war. It just reminded me of World War One so much where, you know, something as simple as the assassination of a archduke, you know, just led into this massive protracted war and i think that time is hopefully done where that's not where this goes because we have so many nato allies up on that border and now we're grabbing some of the scandinavian countries we're like come on aboard which is exactly what putin didn't want um so um i'm really hopeful that they're probably going to have to pull out leave and they'll probably do it again another 10 20 years depending on who's in power all right so with what your wife does, and we don't have to get into it, but it, it's a specific question. With what she does, uh, we'll just say she's around the media unless you want to go into more depth of what she does. Sure. When you look at the stories coming out of there, uh, whether that be on social media, whether it be you know Associated Press, whatever it may be, when you look at that, do you think that we're getting the full story from what's going on there? Or do you think that there's a lot more behind the scenes? Because we have guys like... Uh, tip of the spear, Ryan Hendrickson over there that's teaching how to remove landmines and all that kind of stuff. He was a Green Beret. And we're seeing stories from his cameras and stuff that he's going over there. And we're seeing a lot of stuff that's not on the national or international news. Um, do you think we're getting the full story or do you think there's a lot more behind the wall that we're not seeing? There's probably a lot more behind the wall. And, you know, I love a good conspiracy theory. I think they're fantastic. You know, the Freemasons and the Illuminati are doing these things. And, uh, you know, there's a mole people or whoever else uh, living underground. But it, it, they're, they're great. They're fun. It's a great exercise. Um, so what convolutes the entire point is there's so many different conspiracy theories that there's a pedophile ring. There's, there's Nazis. There's all these different things involved with this invasion with the Ukraine. But I think it's so much more simple than that. Are we getting the full picture? No, definitely not. But I don't think it's nearly as uh, odd as some of the conspiracy theorists think about the Ukrainian war. I think it's simply Putin was trying to, you know, bring back some of his old satellite countries and and make Russia great again, if you will. Um, That's what it seems like. But I I, I, I doubt. (laughs) Yeah, I doubt. uh, I doubt (laughs) they're doing. uh, I, I doubt if we're getting the full picture and. The sheer amount of money, like as you mentioned, that we're flooding in there with almost no accountability. You know, no one can pull back and be like, "Oh, this uh, this twenty billion went to, you know, HIMARS, and this twenty billion went to some Bradley fighting vehicles." And this, it's just like it's 
and again, I'm, you know, I'm not in the political arena, so I could be misspeaking, but it sure doesn't seem like there's been any accountability at all. It's just a flood of money. I know the conspiracy theorists like, well, we're laundering money or we're paying off certain debts. You know, it's just, it could be as weird as people think, you know, who knows? It could be that weird, but I, I think it's simply that, um, when we have a bottomless pocketbook that people are just like, well, here, take, take 20 trillion and see what happens. Um, even though it's not truly bottomless because this will affect us eventually with our national debt and everything else. But those in power seem to be very adept at just giving away tons of money with no real accountability. How That's long... probably more what the story is. Where's the money? Where's it going? I agree. Yeah. But, but here's the question. Here's an add on to that. How long until the money doesn't necessarily run out, but you have to start committing actual humans to it? There's a, there is going to be a point where you're going to have to get emotionally, and it's the weirdest way to say it, but emotionally and physically invested in it. I don't think that's anywhere near. I don't think that'll come to fruition. And I hope it doesn't come to fruition because I think we know what that looks like and what the end state is. Um, you know, starting another world war, that's exactly where it'd go. If we started committing anything like troops or anything else, I'm actually a little surprised that by us giving, you know, the high Mars and some of their, um, some of our different capabilities to the Ukrainians, that that hasn't just put Russia over the edge and by Russia, I mean Putin. So I, I don't see an appetite for us going. Um, I don't see an appetite for any of the NATO countries because they know what that entails. The second they, initiate some sort of movement with, with more bodies. I just, I don't think that's going to happen in this venue and I hope it doesn't because that's going to cascade into something the world doesn't need or want. I, I, but you know, following behind that, you have China, Taiwan, you have Iran. There's a lot of powers that are looking around to see if this quote unquote land grab by Russia is going to amount to something because I think you're going to get a lot more people trying to do those land grabs if it works out for them. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. And I'm actually surprised Thailand or excuse me, Taiwan hasn't already been scooped up by the Chinese government. I'm just very surprised that that hasn't gone. Uh, you know, I think they set back on their heels long enough and watch what the world's response was to Ukraine and was not threatened by it uh, at all. So uh, I'm actually a little surprised they haven't already just, you know, pulled a Hong Kong on them. All right, let's talk about some lighter things for a little while. Sure. We've had some guys on here in these last lives that uh, people want to know, like, what their favorite movies are, how they spend mm. their time. Let's talk about your favorite movie, because you've already mentioned a couple. You said that you did movie quotes during gunfights. Let's talk about it. What's your favorite, man? I think that is an impossible question to ask. Oh, I don't think it is <laughs> at all. There's got to be plenty of people that are like, Goonies, hands down, that's it. Uh, or whatever it is. Um, I just think there's so many awesome movies out there, you know, to, and I think it would depend on my mood. Sometimes I just want to watch Big Lebowski and have a white Russian and, and wear a bathrobe all day and just see how that goes. And then at that moment, that might be my favorite movie or, or watching John Wayne and True Grit or, you know, playing Rooster Cogburn. Like, I got to be a certain mood for that. Um, but man, favorite movie. That is, uh, you could have asked me that two weeks ago and I probably wouldn't have an answer for you today. An exact because I think it just fluctuates so much. Uh, and as I've gotten older, the war genre doesn't entice me at all. Um, not because I, you know, 
I enjoy enjoyed my time there and I loved it. I just don't care to see it that much, at least not on the screen. I just maybe it's a, a lack of uh, being able to hit the I believe button. Like I believe when you see something wrong with their CQC <laughs> or their gun handling or anything else, I just can't let it go when someone does something that's just so outrageous or the way they speak to each other. I'm like, God, like how did you not get a vet in there to make this better? I'm sure there's some great examples of movies that are war movies now that are modern. Lone Survivor was good. You know, they did a great job with that, but there's so many that I'm just like, oh, dude, oh, he would never do that. Come on. So maybe that's kind of shied me away a little bit from that genre. Uh, even though I watch the old Dirty Dozens and things like that, and you're like, this is so outrageously nothing that would ever happen, but uh, still enjoy it for that value. Well, I was actually kind of trying to go down a different path. What I want to point out, yeah. we got a lot of people in the room. If you guys have questions, Dave says he'll answer anything, uh, anything. And nothing <laughs> is off the table. So ask your questions to him. But I was going down a different path. You're a giant yeah. Star Wars nerd. Oh, yeah. Uh, is Yoda in the background? Nope. He's it was the last time. See, you fixed the room up. Now Yoda isn't there. Well, I just, I mean, kind of had to. He's there. He is. Okay. Yeah. So there, yeah. Um, my wife is a, is a full fledged nerd, um, in the best kind of way, um, plays Dungeons and Dragons and plays PS five and, and all those different things. It's just a boatload of fun, uh, being around her. Um, but I would have to, I say I'm a closet nerd and she disagrees entirely. She's like, there's nothing closet about your nerdery or a full fledged nerd. I'm like, I agree. Yeah, I, I can take that. I understand that. I did just, uh, play Star Wars Battlefront 2 for the first time. I thought that was just amazing and love flying around and, you know, using the force. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, I, I, I thought you would definitely go in that route when you were talking about favorite movies, but all right. Oh, man, there, that's such a, such a why. You know, I think if you had to go by genre, and you're like, hey, uh, give me give me a favorite movie by genre, and you, when we hit sci-fi, we'd have to go to Empire Strikes Back. I mean, it's just the best one. All right, let's talk about uh, a couple easy movie questions. Is Die Hard, since we just passed it, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? 100%. I don't care what the producers say. I don't care what Bruce Willis says. That is a Christmas classic. They're not in charge of telling us whether it's a Christmas movie or not. Is uh, Die Hard 2 a Christmas movie? That's so funny because I would not think of that as a Christmas movie, even though it's set in the exact same time. Uh, It's right around the Christmas holidays. Maybe it's because Tire 2 wasn't nearly as revolutionary to be too strong of a word for Die Hard, but it wasn't so unique of a movie. Now it's like, oh, we're, we're dying harder. Got it. You know, it's we're doing the same thing. It's the same shtick. Uh, great. This guy's doing Tai Chi Naked. I'm not sure why they started that movie off with a Tai Chi Naked guy. But <laughs> you remember here's that? the yeah oh absolutely I just watched it like a week ago and here's what I'll tell you Die Hard two uh, this might be controversial is better than Die Hard one. All right, that's where I got to go. We'll yeah. see you, man. Well, yeah, it was good to see you, and and I'm glad we got back together. But by far, Die Hard Two is a way better movie than Die Hard One. I'm trying to kind of go back through it. We had the Dad from Good Times, which is that's a plus. Um, you didn't have just the Dad from Good Times. You had the Dad from Family Matters in both the movies. In both, so I, I think that's a plus in both categories. Okay, kind of to rank it. Um, which is a little cheap to put him in that one again. I'm like, come on. Like, how's this beat cop from LA here? But, uh, you had snowmobiles. You had snowmobiles in part two. Everyone loves a good snowmobile fight. So 
Oh, maybe I'll have to revisit it after this and just see if it's uh, uh, as Christmas classic as you uh, proposed. <laughs> All right. I asked you before, too. I sent it to you. What was your favorite music to get pumped up to, to get ready, whether that be for a mission, whether that be for training, the range, whatever it is? Let's talk about some of your choices because I looked them up and I can agree and I got to disagree on a couple. Ooh, what? What? Okay. Well, let's well, let's approach Iron Maiden first. You you uh, go ahead. Well, that was one overseas. And this was a Ramadi thing. We had a guy named Mikey and a uh, rock and roll personality through and through. Awesome dude. He was, uh, you know, I'd go to war with him anytime. And he had a massive speaker. And he was my age, so he's, you know, we're a little older than most of the guys. And he would crank, uh, I think, some Van Halen, definitely some Iron Maiden, some Run to the Hills. It crank across the camp as we're kind of jocking up. I personally, as I'm, I personally, when I'm getting ready for mission, I don't want any noise. So maybe that's a little different that I just like quiet solitude. I brew a pot of coffee. There's a little tiny pot, but I brew a pot of coffee, work through my gear, just work through the mission plan, all that. So I didn't actually use music to get amped up um, for missions, but in the background was Mikey's run to the Hills, you know, going through the camp and all that. Um, and, and, you know, we listen to music once in a while as we're out on an op, if it's getting a little mundane, it's a long transit, no thought of us actually getting contacted. We put a little music on in there and that was, man, that could be Jack Johnson to black eyed peas to wh whoever was controlling the iPod at the time. I, I just want you to know that you put out to the world that, Navy SEALs were listening to Black Eyed Peas on the way to a mission. It, it came to my mind all of a sudden, like Black Eyed Peas. <laughs> well, it's got to mean something then. It, I mean, they are delicious, so maybe that's why I don't really know. Maybe that's what it is. Uh, yeah. I, I, did, I, I did tell you, though, about Symphony of Destruction. You did do that. So let's talk about that because that's a whole thing with Metallica. I've seen them. Uh, love them still to this day. Uh, that's, uh, of course, Megadeth that does Symphony of Destruction, but they have the whole background with Metallica and stuff like that. Why is that song so important? It, it's a funny-ish story where I... Uh, where, what year was this? Maybe 18, 2018, 2017? Um, I was just out of good workout music. I just like, now I left it in Metallica, left into... Um, I have some Russian rap that's kind of hilarious. I like to work out too. Uh, yeah, I'll. Uh, you have to look that one up. Yeah, you're gonna DJ have to Blatt. send that one over to me, DJ Blatman. Uh, you'll you'll dig it. Um, but I just was going through. I was like, I need something to lift. Uh, I was doing deadlifts. I was like, I want something for deadlifts. I want to get. That's where I like my music. I want to get amped up. I want to like pull some heavy weights and have a good time. And I was like, well, what's this Megadeth thing? And I was a kid of the '80s and '90s. You think I would know Megadeth? I hadn't heard a single song of theirs and just first one I put on them, Symphony of Destruction. I'm like, oh, oh, lift weights. Got to go lift weights now. This is a ma so uh, Megadeth was deadlift day. Wow. Like from back then till now, deadlift day, like it's Megadeth starting off with Symphony. Uh, you know, there's there's plenty of other good ones, but that one just kind of stuck with me. It's the it's some of the guttural talking that the uh, lead singer is doing as he's going through there, like. You want to make a mortal man, put him in control, you know, watch him become a god. Then the heads go, uh, heads are roll. I'm like, yes, like, woo, gotta go lift stuff. Well, let, let's talk about that because we've kind of danced around it the whole time. Mm -hmm. With you, and I've always told you this, you are to me more than a lot of people that I know a renaissance man. You read, you like art, you're a nerd, you play board mm -hmm. games, 
you have been all across the world and been in battle and, and done all of these things. Why is that so important to you? Because I've always thought about that since our last talk. You said that could that is the best compliment that someone could give you is that you are a renaissance man. So why that again? I was gonna say it's the best compliment you could possibly give me. So why is it so important? Because I, I on the show we talk about that it's not just the soldier, it's not just the police officer, it's not just the first responder. There's a whole person that the world 99% 99% of the time does not get to see. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, there's these snippets of what a person looks like. I go, oh, this guy's a seal. So he's already gone to this little box of what people would uh, think a seal is, or you're a narcotics officer and you're, you're kind of in this box and this is what you're probably supposed to behave like. And then it's just a quick way to, for your brain to kind of put people in a catalog. But, uh, why is it important? Um, it was 10th grade. I was uh, in Plano, uh, Texas. That's where I went to high school and we were discussing, the Renaissance and history class and the idea of the Renaissance man, just being this master of all these different, or the, uh, you know, knowing all these different things. And it just resonated wholly with me at the time. It was like, that is what you should aspire to be. And, you know, you continue to aspire. You never stop and be like, Oh, yep. Renaissance man. DJ said it was some Renaissance man. I'll keep working for it. <laughs> all done here. <laughs> yep. Oh, what's next? But uh, it, it just, I don't, I don't know if I can tell you why it resonated and it wasn't certainly the fact that, you know, these different artists were called Renaissance men with Michael Angelo and Leonardo and, and everyone else. It wasn't that I wanted to emulate them, but I emulated, I wanted to emulate that ideology. And I thought it was just so interesting that, I don't know, maybe it's something you don't see every day where it's like, oh, this guy can work on a car or he can read Shakespeare or he can um, learn Japanese or whatever it is. I was just like this constant crave of knowledge kind of from that point on just kind of took hold and I always want to learn new things. Every, you know, I, I just picked up uh, sailing with my wife. We go out to the bay now and we go sailing and it's like, I just want to learn something new. And I think like what, what a, a cool skill set is like, I can grab a boat. It's got a sail and I can harness the wind and I go wherever the hell I want. That's just super cool. And that, you know, it's just, it's this constant craving of new information and not just uh, sitting back and be like, had a great life. I loved what I did in the SEAL teams and now I'm teaching and great. We'll just, uh, we'll call it a day. Like, no, like what else is out there? What's, what's new? What, what can I learn? And can I learn how to make whiskey or, or forge my own blades? Or, um, I would say art is out the window cause I cannot draw paint or do anything remotely artistic, uh, apart from writing. Oh, good. I'm so glad I, you said I'm that cause I was getting ready it. to sell you out. <laughs> so, with that, though, when you talk about that, that you're never done learning, don't you think that's gone away a lot now? 100%. And I think, and, and, and let me pose it to you in this way, because we talk about it a lot on the show. That's gone. And so when people walk away from these careers, that's why there's nothing there, because they don't want to learn anymore. They don't want to experience anything else. Or I've even heard a guy, and it was the craziest thing I've ever heard. Scott Mann was on here. And he was very close to to suicide and stuff. And he said, I had done everything. I had done everything I set out to do. What else was there to do? And I it, it resonated so crazy with me that I thought, there's this guy that's been all over the world, has so much to give to the world still, and says, I've done it all. Yeah, um, I definitely don't feel the same way. I can understand where that feeling could be. You know, some of these guys that are 
you know, just incredible athletes or, you know, like you have a guy like Andy Stump that's making these, these crazy jumps all around. You know, he, he's, he's doing uh, what seven jumps to seven continents. In seven yeah. Days. He's doing uh, Birdman. He's going out with Birdman and, and a couple mm-hmm. other guys are going to do seven continents, seven jumps, seven marathons in seven days. Yeah. And that guy's a massively accomplished guy. He's extremely intelligent. Um, you know, he, he really has all these things that he's done in the past that are fantastic, but he doesn't stop. He's continuing to excel and see what, what are the limits of the, the mind and the body and your spirit? And I think that's wonderful. That's what you should do. And to, to sit back and be like, I've done everything. I'm like, that's arrogant for one or more, probably more closely. It's myopic. You know, it's like, okay, that's, that's extremely short-sighted that you think you've done everything. Like, you know, especially having a kiddo, you know, I'm like, there's so many things I want to introduce to teach in this short time I have while she's still, listening to me and she's not uh you know a crazy teenager it's just she's listening and like that right there you know it's that that's my ikigao you know that's 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 my reason to be that's what i'm doing it's like i think you've kind of done it all like man that's short-sighted at best but coming from a career that we've done i can empathize with that as well but man go go learn a new skill i I picked up uh spoon making of all things (laughs) wait a minute you didn't yeah, tell me about out, this. Wait a minute. It's, out, it's outside. I wish I had it. Uh, I took it camping with me. Um, I carved a wooden spoon out of some, uh, I think it was beechwood. And I've never been inclined towards something like that. And I just was like, I want to make a wooden spoon. And the most meditative thing I've done outside of meditating. It is Get fantastic. the fuck out of here. For real? Yeah. I lost three hours like that. I was just like. Oh, working on my spoon like three hours later I'm like holy shit and in my very first spoon i was like okay it's almost done i'm really liking the look of this knife dug in gave it a little too much brute force which is what i do and the whole thing sheared apart and just my entire spoon was gone i'm like i don't care i had fun i set down my tool and I went inside and then like six months later i picked up a new spoon and i carved it out and looks you know people are like oh where'd you buy this i'm like nope i made it so and the next step is the next step is doing a cup and they whittle out a cup it's called a Cuska, I think it's Swedish. Like a Viking mug? Um, somewhat. Some of the Viking mugs are more like wood panels that are kind of cinched in like a barrel. It's like staves, uh, like a barrel would have. This would be um, a log, yay. And then you spoon that thing out and you have this little tiny handle. It's just a, a regular wooden cup. It, it, are you telling me, is this going to be an exclusive? There's going to be a wink line of spoons and cups. There might be two to three out there a year. So, you know, it's going to be high demand and low volume. So I'm really going to. That, hey, that is the best way to sell. Very low account. Get people wanting them so bad and then never build another one again. Just say you can do it. Oh, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. The new line will be out in a short, short time. Well, that, that is amazing. Every time I talk to you, there's something new. Let's, let's talk about a couple of your friends and how well they're doing. Uh, let's talk about mm-hmm. Mac for a minute. He's blowing up and yeah, it's so it's good fantastic. to see him. That is exactly what we've, you and I have talked about the whole time. The guy is just throwing it all out there and not afraid to get it cut off. It's been a roller coaster for Mac. You know, and uh, I love listening to her to him on your show because I learned more about him than I knew from the SEAL teams. There were just certain aspects of his life. I'm like, I had no idea. And he's one of my new guys. Um, you know, you only can get so close to your new guys while you're the chief, um, which is great now that we're both out and I can just call him up or, or see how he's doing. And 
I'm just getting to understand more about who he is. He's such a uh, interesting guy to say the least. He's just a jack of all trades, just an amazing guy. And I'm so happy that his Mac belts is doing well. And then you were telling me about his, his new line working with some of the national, uh, uh, national parks. It's going to be called America, the beautiful. Yeah, that's amazing. I just love seeing, I love seeing any of the guys that get out that have a success story because we get the opposite, uh, far too many times, uh, with suicides and, and everything else. So it's great when a guy gets out and he got out under not the circumstances he wanted with his injuries and, you know, he had his, his low moments and, and now he's able to, you know, pull himself out of that area and thrive. And that's what I love about team guys and, and SWAT officers and green berets and everybody else under the sun to that same personality. You're like, I'm going to thrive no matter what. I'm just going to keep clawing my way up and doing it. So let me put a different situation to you. Cause I want to do the exact opposite of what you just said. You said, I love seeing people succeed. I love seeing people take that situation, turn it into something else. Then you have the opposite end of the spectrum where people are trying to shut down everything someone else is doing, telling them that's a waste of your time. It's a dumb idea. Why would you put yourself out there like that? Why would you do this? What are your thoughts on that? Cause you and I have never really talked about that side of it. We've always talked about encouraging and telling people, man, go grab the world by the horns, but there's that other one. And it's becoming a very strong undercurrent anymore. It is. And that's a, that's a, a strange thing coming from the United States where we, you know, you can become anything you want. It doesn't matter what we have no social caste system. You know, we have no, uh, nothing else holding somebody down from doing their best. That just seems so American just to reach out and grab what you want and, and fight for it and make it happen. And uh, I can't even imagine being around somebody that was the opposite. That was just like, Oh no, you don't want to do that. No, you, you don't want to put yourself out there. You don't want to risk failure. That's just like, so not me or any of my friends personality. I, I it'd be caustic. It'd be, I'd, I'd like leave the room. If someone had that kind of personality, I'd be like, Oh, I fuck this guy. I don't need to talk to them. Like this guy doesn't have anything to offer the world. See you later. But you're right. There does seem to be an undercurrent of, hey, don't do this. Don't get out there uh, with with a portion of the population. But I know there's other kids out there just from being a coach that are go-getters and they're like hungry and they want to succeed and they want to be out there. And my daughter talks about starting a business uh, once a week at least. Like, hey, can we start a business? We're going to make this. I'm like, yeah, 100%. Let's do something like that. Spoons. Yeah, spoons. That's I'm going to get her it. a carbon next. They're, they're pretty baller. If I had one here, I'd show you. It's it's uh. I'm I'm looking forward to it. I want one sent to me, and I will use it every single day. You 100% will be getting one then. <laughs> it that will be, be my model. That will be my model three. So uh, yeah, it should be pretty nice. Oh, you need to do like Iron Man and do Mark series. So each different suit of armor that you make is a is a yeah, different is, Mark. So this is Mark three. Yeah, I've been, yeah. I've been working on a ladle idea next. I think that's going to be pretty hot commodity. I, you know, I, I'm always looking for a good ladle. So I mean, who, who isn't? All right. Let's talk about a couple of your other buddies out there. Uh, you introduced me. I just went on a trip. Uh, I was in mineral wells. You introduced me to your buddy at the brewery. And yep, I got to tell you, it's some of the most fantastic beer I've ever had in my life. Oh yeah. Brian Miller out of the Rick house brewery in mineral wells, Texas. Big shout out to you. Cause that guy is just super awesome. And it's just a, it's a funny story. I'm sure you heard the background over a few beers. Just, he was my company commander in 
high school ROTC. Again, I always knew I wanted to be military. So when I found out the high school had an ROTC program, I'm like, well, I'm going to do that. Our high school had a shooting range, for God's sakes. We had a shooting range where he shot guns in a school, which may not sound too crazy to our Texas fans here, but uh, to everyone else in the world, you're like, there's no, you shot guns in school. I'm like, yeah, we're all very, very safe. Well, we should talk about that school because it's not just a regular school. I work with some people that went to that school and it's not just your run of the mill high school. Yeah, you're right. It is, it is Plano, Texas. And uh, all the three Plano senior highs are a little bit extra. I mean, it, our, our school looked like a college campus. I mean, there's like two ponds with ducks in it and just this massively huge campus. Our football stadium held 23,000 fans and we would get that capacity for some of our big games. I mean, it's just, it's outrageous. Also, another thing that I want to point out, when I was talking to him and getting the story of you guys' <laughs> background, he told me that you are the man that you are today because of him. Oh, 100%. Yeah, okay, Brian good. Was, uh, Brian, he was my company commander. Uh, I can't remember what company that was. Maybe Delta, I don't know. But uh, yeah, he was, the, the thing I remember him uh, telling me specifically for Brian was uh, we were marching and he just stopped me. He's like, step out and walk over there. I'm like, okay. I walked over there. I walked back. He's like, you know, you don't swing your arms. I'm like, nope. I had no idea. Like, okay, get back in there and swing your arms while you're marching. I'm like, oh, all right. <laughs> that was probably my first experience with, with him as a company commander. Cause I was only a freshman at the time. And, uh, but it, it was funny. We, we still maintained a, a relationship, even though, you know, he was going off to, you know, he was graduating and all that. We once in a while would end up in an Irish pub in Dallas, uh, the temporary Inn. may not be around anymore, but we we're, all underage and hanging out there and getting a beer. <laughs> I, I didn't drink in high school and I, I didn't drink uh, until I was maybe 20, you know, almost 21. So I just didn't, but yeah, later on we'd go and get a beer and uh, he'd take me out shooting once in a while. And that's the first time I ever got to shoot uh, some of the more fun things in the world. You know, he had like a, an AR of sorts and let us all shoot and there's, and then kind of lost contact for a long time, kind of saw him on Facebook and then, you know, started the charity or retired and we kind of relinked up and, met him in Dallas one time and was like, well, let's, you know, let me get you some beer and come up and see me. And yeah, it's kind of, it's a great way to rekindle a relationship with somebody that you, you know, didn't know that well actually in high school. Well, here's the great thing. So about his place, if anybody doesn't know, if you've never been to Mineral Wells, Texas, one of the coolest place to take a little, you know, two day trip, three day trip, his brewery is inside a hotel that is fantastic. It is an old hotel. It's got all the art deco, everything. My room there actually looked over across at the haunted hospital that's there that is still taped up and you can do ghost tours and everything there. The town is absolutely amazing. But when I went in and talked to him, uh, he had talked about a lot of the things, a couple of your memorabilia was in the bar. There was mm -hmm. a lot of different things going on, but I want to talk about what you're going to be doing with him. Now, I know it's in the, the pre-planning stages and stuff, but let's talk about what's going to be happening with Tier 1 because I want to definitely get them involved in the conversation. We've, we've been on again, off again, talking about how we're going to do this. And, uh, you know, we're all novices when it comes to, well, on the Tier 1 side of the house with, you know, our charity uh, helps support our special operators and our veterans uh, and special law enforcement. Um, we're very novice, you know, like, I'm the president of tier one, but I have zero background in how to run a charity. I'm just learning as I go. Um, but we've been talking about doing a fundraiser there at the Rick house brewery in mineral wells and, you know, trying to bring in some barbecue and bring in some chefs that uh, have been very kind to us in the past. Um, and just seeing if we can put on 
a show of sorts, you know, whether it's a little bit of live music, a little bit of food, a little bit of beer, and just kind of see how that goes. Uh, no dates have been set. Um, we're kind of focusing our energy right now on a skeet shoot. It'll be up in that same area. Uh, I don't want to say who it's with yet because nothing's set in stone. But we're trying to do a, a skeet shoot and be able to have, you know, some retired seals up there to be able to shoot uh, with some of our donors and things like that. And that's we're going to we're working on that one first, possibly the Dallas Safari Club um, to, to introduce ourselves to some folks. And then after that, probably look to go to Rick House and do something with Brian and his uh, his whole crew. But you're right. The memorabilia there is uh, is pretty epic because I have a, a flag that I gave Brian that was from the governor of Texas, from Rick Perry. And uh, it was kind of a thank you for uh, the beer that he gave us one time for a, for one of our hunts. And I remember telling one of the board members, like, I have this cool flag. It's from Rick Perry. He flew in Afghanistan. I carried in Afghanistan. And uh, he's like, you you can't give that to him. If you give that to him, I'm going to go steal it. Like, he, he flat out did not want me to to get rid of this awesome flag. I'm like, no, this, this is a gift meant to be shared. I have other Texas flag I carried. And whether it was from Mr. Perry or not, it doesn't really matter. So I, I know he, I know Brian treasured that. And he, he put up a nice display uh, and, and really showcased it well. I haven't seen it in person yet, but I hope to. I I have seen it in person. I wish you wouldn't have. I wish you would have told me that when I was there. I would have taken a picture for you and showed it to you. Um, let's talk about Tier One for a little bit. Uh, it's an amazing organization and it does fantastic things for these guys. And you guys are really starting to branch out as you get your feet underneath you, learn more because you said you don't come from that world. But as you get more worldly about it your reach really starts to grow and it's really started to kind of take off. So let's talk about what they do, why you kind of started it and what you guys have planned other than what we just talked about with Rick house. Sure. You know, and, and the, the basic premise was we want to get our special operators, Navy seals, PJs, green berets, you know, all the guys who really um, took the brunt of the war, not saying that other units didn't do a lot of things and see a lot of action, but our special forces are used mercilessly as just a constant thing. So we're trying to get those guys who have this common background and all special forces guys, we can all talk at the same talk. And then we're getting our, our SWAT officers and our, our high risk, you know, law enforcement officers have been out there doing a similar job here in the home, uh, in the homeland, keeping our streets safe and then combining them together on these events. And, you know, the first time we did it, we're like, oh, I'm not really sure how this is going to look. I sat in a uh, in a deer blind with a, a Dallas SWAT officer, um, great guy, and there wasn't a pause in the conversation except to admire some of the deer. It was just like we're the same people in a way, same mentalities in a certain way, um, just where it fed a lively conversation, and you're just like, wow, like this officer's seen a lot and crazy ass stories. I'm like, I got some crazy stories, bro, but you're you're you've got some crazy ones. You know, so it was just awesome to see how those guys meshed. And then what we realized is we were creating best kind of ways. We're now creating this friendship and this group that can talk to each other. And when we're having a hard time, um, you know, we have a couple different chats set up. You know, see a guy chime in. He's like, bros, I'm having a real hard time with this. And all these different guys are like, hey, I'll email you. Hey, I'm like, PM, PM you. Hey, I'm going to come to your house. So it it started, let's get some guys outside in nature and hunt and fish and snowboard and, and kayak the devil's river and things of that nature. Um, that's where it started. And it, what we're doing is now creating a safe space with guys of the same mentality 
the same background with similar shared experiences. So now you can talk to each other. And it, it, like I said, it creates a tribe and that's way more powerful than getting out and getting a whitetail or, or shooting an elk or something like that. It's just, we know we have a support network and the more funds we can raise, the more people we can bring under that support network and bring them into our tribe. And, and I think that's going to do a lot of good. Um, but you're right. We are getting out there a lot more. I was at a rugby game here in San Diego, met a lady and she's like, what, wait, you're tier one outdoors. I'm like, yes, you've heard of us. She's like, yeah. I'm like, Oh my God, someone's heard of us outside of our little group. And it was just amazing to hear. And it uh, really lets us know we're doing the right thing and we're on the right track to make sure we can, you know, expand how many people we serve and expand the experiences we offer. I'm still waiting for someone to recognize me outside for the podcast. So, um, that hasn't happened yet. No, not really. It really hasn't. You know, I get emails and stuff, but no one in the outside world. So, Let's well, talk about if you're if you're at Rick House when I go there, just sit at the bar and when I finally come in, you're I gonna just, pretend like you oh, don't know oh, me. Yes. I love that. That's that's you're amazing. From ETD. There you go. With police coffee. I love you guys. There you go. <laughs> it all won't right. be disingenuous at all. Let me let me ask you a two part question about that. <clears throat> you talk about a lot of guys when you're in the deer blind and they're talking, they're sharing uh shared experiences in the world. My question to you would be one, why don't guys talk about that kind of stuff more? Why does it build and build and build until it's unbearable to them? And number two, you're talking to guys that are watching this show right now, girls watching this show that are having a real hard time reaching inside themselves and reaching out to someone to talk. What advice are you going to give them to get them out there and get their message to someone that could possibly help them? I've come across this a couple of times um, because of the charity where um, the local yoga studio I go to, I've you know, told the owners there about what I do and, and the guy's a veteran as well. And so I get, I'll get a random text from him just like, Hey, uh, got a guy that's not doing well. I'm like, cool. You know, like the first thing is just get out there and just get a, get a quick conversation going, whether it's text or on the phone, just like, Hey, this, Hey, I got you. I know what's going on. Hey, please let me know. I'll let him know that there's there's hope out there and that there's people that can support you. Um, it, I think that is one of the bigger things because I know when people are in, in that phase where everything's so dark, they feel alone. And when you're just like, hey, man, um, been there a different way probably from you. But we all have had these similar experiences and you're not alone. This isn't unique to you even though it may feel like you're the only guy that had only gal that's had this thing going on. It's not unique. Um, maybe nuanced, but it's not unique. So it's like, you're not by yourself. You're able to get help and to, to find some light at the end of the tunnel. And I think that's probably my favorite thing about the charity so far is that's introduced me to people that are, you know, we'd say, you know, uh, back to that dark humor, they're circling the drain a little bit, you know, they're like, Hey, this person's kind of on their way out and they're not going to be here much longer. It's like, cool. I'm glad to be able to reach out, go get a cup of coffee, you know, go to yoga if that's the thing or whatever it is, just to be like, this, this isn't how it has to be. Um, and a lot of that back to ego, why aren't they seeking help? It's ego. You look weak. You look like you're not in control. You know, how many people in the law enforcement community wanted to come across as weak, not in control of their own lives. We're, we're alpha uh, male and females. We're, we're powerhouses. We're the answer to the question. 
you know, for you guys, when you get called, you are someone's lifeline. So you must know everything. You must have all the answers to your life. Uh, except we don't. Um, so it's that ego gets in the way of people reaching out for help and saying, you know, who, who wants to say that? Who wants to tell somebody I, I need help? I mean, as the, the great joke about, you know, driving around with the, with the wife and kids in the car and you have no idea where you're going. Like, stop over and ask that guy. Are you serious? You got to ask a man for directions? Gotta, I'll, I'll find a way. And that's part of the problem is the guys are just a little too burrowed into their own ego and don't want to look weak. And uh, my sister-in-law just texted me and was like, when do I get to ask him a question? I'm like, you can ask me a question anytime. You don't need to be on the show to ask me. <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting for her message to come through. Uh, let's talk oh, about okay. her company real quick before we get into some uh, pictures and stuff. And then we're going to kind of start to wrap it up. But we're going to go through okay. some pictures you're going to explain. Well, let's talk about your sister's company because it's an amazing company, too. Yeah, so that's Badass Boxes. And that was born from a conversation that um, me and another SEAL had with her um, over some whiskey in Pasadena, California. Uh, it was more about the care packages you receive overseas. And, and I love all the care packages people give us, but some people are stuck in the maybe Vietnam era mentality, what care packages should look like. So when I get a can of beanie weenies and some like, you know, Frank into camps, whatever, like, you know, pintos and beans, or you get the most random shit food you would never buy yourself. I'd never go to the store and buy anything that was possibly purchased for me. And you just get these packages. You're like, oh, beef ravioli from Chef Boyardee? Like, where do these people think I am? Um, and I truly appreciated people reaching out, random strangers just giving us food. But most of it went onto a shelf and stayed there. So I was kind of complaining to her about that. And she's like, well, what would you want in something like this? What would you want in a care package? I'm like, well, like a customizable care package. I want protein powder. I want creatine. Um, maybe I want some like, you know, workout, pre-workout. I want healthy snacks. Um, I want things I can take with me uh, on patrols. That's a healthy snack because people just give you the most unhealthy things. And we're, we're, we're fit humans and we really want to stay fit and not eat crap all the time. And we want to fuel our bodies with the appropriate uh, calories. So I was like, we just want the simple stuff. I want good protein powder. Get, give me some muscle milk. You know, give me some, uh, oh, hell, I was in the Philippines, and I don't think I saw a vegetable for months. Like, I, mean, I had plenty of mangoes. It seems like had... the oddest thing, that you wouldn't see a vegetable. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, we were eating a lot of protein, and that was the first time the body felt wrong. I, my whole body, I'm like, I don't feel good. It's like, I'm not getting vegetables. I'm like, I'm not getting any vegetables down here. I'm getting mango, rice, fried chicken, the sweet spaghetti they serve down there, which is, it's got corn syrup and spaghetti. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with the world with corn syrup and spaghetti. Um, but that's what it was. And I finally had to have someone send me some like green powder. I was like, okay, there we go. And that's what I was kind of referencing with her. I'm like, we just want good, healthy food. Um, because a lot of times overseas you're eating MREs or stuff from the chow hall. That's just not good. So that that's what, created badass boxes where she will take customizable orders from people who are deployed uh, to the most austere areas. So guys who are deployed to locations that have no PX, no ADX, no, no means of going out and getting even shampoo. That's how Afghanistan was like 
hey, I can't go get shampoo. I can't get soap. I can't buy coffee. Like, God forbid, I can't get some coffee. Um, so I like reached out. I'm like, hey, can you send some of these things? And that's that's where we kind of started. So now she can reach out to um, deployed units. Again, these are people who are not on a bigger American base where they can go down and get a green bean coffee or go get some Wendy's. This is people who are stuck off in the most remote places and the most dangerous places in the world. She'll take their order um, and create these care packages and then send them off. And uh, it's been wildly successful with the guys who receive these packages. It's one of those things you're like, you got everything we asked for. Like you sent everything. Like, yeah, that's what we do. I mean, she sacrificed her entire garage to house all these dry goods and proteins and everything else that she packages up. And then she packages up herself. You know, it's not a, it's not a huge operation. She's not farming this out to other folks. She's doing all this herself to make sure guys get a solid care package. So that's badass boxes. I want to point out a couple things. One, I would love for you to ask a question because I've talked to her personally and I want to hear what kind of question that she has. Number two, I would also like to point out, if you don't mind talking about a care package that she sent to you and your team overseas that had some questionable products in them. I was wondering if that would actually come up. Well, you said that they customize them, so I just want everyone to understand how much they customize them. It was customized to the T that uh, the guys, I don't know, jokingly or, or not jokingly, asked for <laughs> a masturbatory aid uh, that looks like a flashlight. <laughs> That's exactly, they're like, hey, let's get uh, one per man. I'm like, okay, I'll ask her. And they were sent out the next care package. So it was uh, uh, quite the... Quite the boon for us there. You're like, oh, wow, that's truly <laughs> quite the boon. Yeah, you're like, hey, we got some extras. Anybody need? You guys good? You need anything over there? No? Hey, how about you, random helicopter pilot? You need? No? Okay. No? No? All right. So, yeah, it's uh, they were truly customizable. I, I, I like certain things to snack on overseas. I'm like, hey, I'd really like you know, X, Y, and Z. And that's, that's what comes out in the next shipment. And it was always uh, – fun to see the, the boxes roll out and you're like, okay, cool. She's doing a, a great job with the charity and she's getting it out there and, and, you know, supporting the guys. Cause yeah, it's, it's kind of a hell of a thing, you know, jokes aside with, with that care package when you're out in a place and you're like, I, I don't have any soap. I don't have laundry soap. I don't have uh, anything like I can't go to the corner market. You know, I can't just roll down and grab something. So, um, it's great. The guys, the guys were hesitant at first when I first, you know, hooked them up. I'm like, hey, uh, this lady kind of will send you whatever you need. And they seemed reticent to like tell them their location or what they wanted. I'm like, ah, come on, guys. Like, you have an APO. Like, she's gonna send you what you want. And then when they came back, they're like, that was awesome. And when guys returned, she would actually buy a, a plethora of whiskeys. And it would be in this nice wooden crate, said badass boxes on it, had her logo and gave the guys, you know, some whiskeys when they returned since they can't be drinking overseas. That never happens. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's, uh, that's her, that's her charity. And I'm, uh, oh, I'm on the board somewhere as a brand ambassador or something like that. So I'm being the ambassador to the, to the charity at the time. All right. Where can people help them out? Do you, you got all that? I know you're the brand ambassador. Can you tell them exactly where they can help out? I do believe it's going to be badassboxes.com. 
calm and she's probably gonna text me right now and be like what the hell you just told us the wrong place um but i can i can search for it real quick uh there's not a lot of social media uh on there there's there's some facebook and some things of that nature there's due to people's privacy and to not wanting to show our special operators there isn't pictures of guys opening boxes or or of any of those kind of things it's just here's our logo this is what we do like please help out uh with with the care packages and and it's uh, yep. Badass boxes. Badassboxes.com. So, uh, we, we have to remember, we still have people in austere environments, even though Afghanistan's done a really good job. They did there. Um, and then Iraq is done and, you know, we, we don't have guys deployed to a lot of these locations. We still have people in Somalia and uh, you name it, all the different shithole places that you could possibly go to. We still have operators there doing the work, make, making sure, um, you know, they're helping support the local, uh, military to make sure there's, you know, not a, a rash of slaughtering by, you know, Boko Haram or anything like that. Uh, so we still have people deployed to, even though we don't have these wars anymore, these big wars where we'd always send stuff. We still have guys deployed to the most austere locations where they can't get basic needs met. Um, so that's why it's so important. The guys still look to donating, even though it's to, sent to a location they probably never heard of or didn't think we had, you know, troops in. Well, we'll, we'll get more to it. Of course, the links will be in there for people to get a hold of them. Fantastic organization. Your sister is a fantastic person. I've talked to her personally and she's doing a really Wait, great job. I think you must talk to somebody else. No, no, no. I talked to her. No, no, no. <laughs> you were the one that made that happen. So, uh, yeah, I talked to her. All right, let's wrap this up. I'm going to show a couple of pictures from your career that you have sent me. Uh, and I just want to talk about what was going on in those. Cause a lot of people see these pictures on the website, but they don't know really the kind of basis behind them or the connotation behind them. So let's go over a, a, a couple of them. And uh, you just tell me kind of what was going on here. Now I, I want to point out before we start into these pictures that you go through a lot of different hairstyles and you oh, cover yeah. a lot of different Hollywood actors in these hairstyles. Uh, uh. Let's start with this one, because I think by far, and I think you would agree, this is probably the worst one. Oh, 100%. This okay. was a, uh, a SEAL Team 1, 2004. We're doing direct action missions out uh, of Al-Assad, and we're covering everything out to Syria, Korean village, down to Saudi Arabia. Like, we have a large swath of land we're responsible for, and we're having a lot of fun doing some direct action missions, first time in Iraq. And then all of a sudden, the new provincial government was elected in Iraq and now they had a president, two vice presidents and a prime minister. And they said, holy shit, who's going to protect these guys? And that's when Blackwater was kind of in their heyday. Uh, I'm just assuming they would charge too much. So the DOD said, well, we got Navy SEALs in country. They're going to go protect these guys. So at first there's only a couple platoons and you were chatting with guys on email and such and like, oh yeah, we're, you know, we're leaving. We're, we're heading to go protect the president. Like, ha, sucks to be you nerd. And then uh, really soon after that, they're like, grab your shit, we're leaving. Like, uh, what? Like, yeah, a couple uh, C-130s hit the deck. We grabbed all of our armored civilian vehicles, had all of our bags packed, tossed it on a pallet. And like, I've never experienced this before, uh, you know, before that or after that. But it was like, the bird lands, the guys drop the tailgate, Air Force is like, bring it in. Bring it in and parked it, which a lot of times are like you don't drive around other aircraft, like they'll drive it. 
they pull us in and they're like, don't get out of the car. I'm like, okay. Like lock the vehicles down. Off we went, landed in Baghdad. They're like, get out. Like, okay. I've never seen anything move that fast in the military. We just turned around and left. And now we convoyed down to the green zone. Uh, we were on route Irish, which is a very uh, infamous route there for IEDs and for ambushes. And um, I remember driving a vehicle that had no power steering. I'm just like trying to make these tight turns with just yanking the damn wheel over and it wouldn't go. Uh, you know, we finally got where we we're going. Um, and now we're, we've probably been up about 24 hours and they're like, okay, state department's coming in. They're going to teach you how to do personal security details for PSD. And I'm like, that's, uh, okay, great. And they teach us the bare bones essentials on how to do PSD around your principal, uh, which is the, the, the person you're protecting. And they, they didn't teach us much. It was maybe an hour's worth of instruction and <laughs> well, nothing like preparing. Oh man. They're like, well, there's going to be an agent in charge and there's this perimeter and you have your advanced and you have your drivers and like all these different things. We're like, okay. And our leadership to their credit did a great job. They're like, these are the peoples in each location. And then they're like, this is who you're going to be protecting. Actually, they didn't start with that. They said, this is Roush Shaways. He's the vice president. He's Kurdish and he's Western educated and he is hated by most of the Iraqis because he's Kurdish and he's Western educated and he speaks English. Um, and then they're like, well, and this is your guy. And he lands in about 30 minutes at HLZ Washington, which is in the middle of the green zone. Good luck. Like, holy shit. So I think this is about the time we pulled over close to HLZ Washington and took a break. And now we've been up for, you know, 28 to 30 hours, just kind of jumping through our ass, trying to get things done. And that was kind of the first time I just stopped took you know, took a seat, had the great mustache going on there. Uh, I had a beard prior to that. And uh, they're like, Hey, you got to shave the beard for this. I'm like, Oh, damn it. So I was not a happy camper sitting there on the side of the road. Uh, you know, 120 degrees out waiting to pick up this uh, Kurdish vice president who's probably going to get us all killed. That was <laughs> the guy that ended up getting you into a wine cellar, though, right? That is exactly the guy who got us into a wine cellar. I thought so, yeah. And he traveled with a case of Chivas Regal everywhere he went. So <laughs> my first time getting a taste of scotch, I'm like, okay, that's uh, that's fantastic. That's what I just uh, finished up right here. Well, there you go. See, so it did work out for you. Well, it 100% worked out. I got to see beautiful Kurdistan many, many times and the the beautiful folk that live there. All right, let's move on to the next one. Mm -hmm. Now, Uh, this is the Chris Pratt era. This is definitely terminalist shit right here. I don't think he was, I don't think he was known back then. Otherwise, yeah, I probably might've gotten some sort of Chris Pratt reference. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> I surprising at this time at this time I was still getting a Chris Farley reference more than anything. Oh wow. I I don't uh, see that. It's some of my mannerisms when I start I would be imitating something Chris Farley did on Saturday Night Live or from in a van Street. down by the river. Yeah, exactly. So that that's probably where that came from. You're living in a van down by the river. There you go. All yeah, right. So that's that's what's going on here. Uh this is our hooch out in Al Assad. Uh, still the same year, 04, and this is probably the first op I was going to be going out on. The first or second, maybe. So just getting jocked up, you know, got the little schmog in there for some of the some of the dirt and, and whatnot. And I was just kind of happy to be doing what we were trained to do and what I felt like I should be doing. 
So let me ask you a question, because I know how it does in law enforcement and, and when we take, you know, for warrants and stuff. How does it come up to take these pictures? I think, uh, you know, and this is back before the cell phone. So uh, it was just one of those guy had a camera out and each one, there was like, you know, five guys living in that same hooch. And it was just like, what it takes one person to start it. Hey, can you get a picture of me and my stuff on? I'm like, yeah, cool. You take it and you're like, that's kind of stupid. Ah, now, hey, can you come take a picture of me with my stuff on? Yeah, all right, let's do that. <laughs> uh, and I had a picture with my interpreter in that same spot. You know, he's a great guy. And it's just one of those, like, it takes one guy to take a picture. And, like, everybody's like, ugh, pictures. All right, cool. I want one, too. Damn it. Yep. What's that thing we talked about, ego? I think we've mentioned it a couple times. 100%. 100%. Yeah, hey, man, don't don't be afraid to be silly. Ah, Philippines. Okay. And what I find absolutely hilarious uh, with my uh, nine-year-old is lately when I take a picture, she and all of her friends go like this. This is 2005 in Holo, Philippines, and all the kids were doing this in every photo. And this one in particular, they snuck it in and did it to me um, while we're there. So this is a, a medical civil affairs program, which is called a MedCap. And we're there to treat local population. Uh, you know, there's a dentist there. There's people giving inoculations. This is a very rural village in Holo, Philippines. That's 99-ish percent Muslim. This is the the, the terrorist groups, the Busayef group, um, the MNLF, the MILF, and the Jislama Islamia. This is their stomping grounds. And this is a way for us to get in there. You're supposed to be there to gather intelligence of sorts. It's really not good at that but it is good about swaying local population and they get to see a white person and probably for one of the first times in their life um but it is interesting i was walking around the square i was more concerned about security and you would see men you know filipino men with the full muslim beard down to here the the hat the robes the same like everything you're like holy hell like i just i didn't realize that the islamic influence was so big in the southern Philippines, you know, and I, I think it was the 10 hundreds or maybe the 12 hundreds, something I'm um, speaking on that one, but, but Islam has been there a long, long time. And people don't realize that it was like, Oh, Phil Philippines, it's a homogenous group of people. I'm like, oh, <laughs> not at all long shot. So that was us doing this medical, uh, medical thing. And the, and the kids were just, they just kept with me the entire time. I walked around the village and I had, you know, a Pied Piper bevy of, of children just following me everywhere. Is this a hearts and minds mission? It is to a degree. It is supposed to be intelligence gathering okay. where maybe you could get something out of it. Um, but the flip side to that uh, coin is that, yeah, it's a hearts and minds thing. It's like, Hey, we're here to help. You know, we're not, the, we're not the boogeyman. We're not here, uh, you know, doing what, whatever you're, what the terrorist groups are saying we're doing we're here to actually help and, and help people out we went to a a sewing machine uh grand opening it was a small building that had like 20 sewing machines all brand new purchased by the u.s government and it was to give the women of the village a skill and something they could market and then uh you know monetize so that right there those, those are all very heart and mind sort of thing um this is my complaint when i was there when we had I did multiples of these uh, things I'm like, Hey, yeah, this is a Intel gathering thing. I'm like, it sure doesn't feel like it. Cause there's no uh, 
uh, real gravitas put towards anything I'm gathering intelligence-wise. In the end, they're like, oh, yeah, but we help these people. I'm like, that's not why we're supposed to be here. We're supposed to be gathering intelligence as a SEAL and then making that to some sort of actionable uh, mission. Not us, but our counterparts, because we're not allowed to operate there. But, yeah, it's supposed to be intel gathering, but it's it's wrapped up in a, in a hearts and minds. So let me ask you, because you and I have never really talked about this. Mm. Hearts and minds missions. What's your thoughts on them? Because you get a wildly different opinion from people that have worked hearts and minds missions to combat missions. And, you know, you've done a lot of this stuff. So what's your thoughts on them? Is it a real thing? Does it really work? Or is it just kind of buzzwords and propaganda? Buzzwords and propaganda is a great way to put it. It may help with some things. Um, and it may, you know, I can't throw a blanket statement out saying that they don't work or it's uh, pure buzzwords and propaganda. By and large, it feels that way. It feels like it's something you're going to put in a report. It's going to go up to a monthly report to some general. And he's like, oh, yeah, this uh, SEAL team was doing a medical civil affairs program and they treated this many people and uh, we gathered some intelligence from it. And it's all just, like, it, it's simply a bullet point in some admirals or some generals you know, monthly report about what we did. That's not saying that they're worthless because in Afghanistan, we're able to co-opt four different warlords. And I use that term in the literal sense, warlords into working for us. And we were doing hearts and minds to a degree, to the point we were giving them job opportunities, whatever business they had, we would find a need to use their business and then pay them and their people money. So it's not hearts and minds, but it's kind of in the same area. It's like we would gain influence by employing some of those people, whether it's dropping off gravel at our, at our compound or sewer, you know, getting some of our sewer pumped out or having the trash collected. If we could pay that guy legally money and in the end, because we are doing that, he's now on our side. And then he co-ops these other warlords that now help us create white space around our place in Afghanistan. So um, I can't say they're worthless uh, in a blanket statement, but a lot of times, and especially in the Philippines, I feel like there's no real essence for what we're supposed to be doing there. And that was just kind of one of those things like, oh, go do a, do a med cap. Uh, there's a lot of information operations down there and it just, it all seems so fruitless. Well, and like I said, you and I have, have never really talked about that, what your thoughts are. And, and when you're talking about Afghanistan, that's part of that video, excuse me, village yep. stabilization, uh, yeah, where they're so. going in there and trying to make that happen. All right, let's move on to the next picture. We got a couple more and then we're going to start to wrap this up. Now, this is, I guess, when you were driving for Uber, I'm not sure. Uh, Uber Eats. Uh, oh, we're, okay, we're good, good. Dropping off some goat burgers and some baklava folks. Uh, this was a fun one because this is still early on in the war, and you could kind of get away with some wazoo shit, uh, which was this. This is an Opal, which is the predetermined car for every terrorist over there. Every time you got a Bolo, it's like, hey, there's a, it's a red Opal. I'm like, yeah, no shit, it's an Opal. It's always an Opal. And that one's like, oh, it's a, it's a Hyundai. No, it's an Opal which is an offshoot from Ford. So this is a black opal that was confiscated after a raid, I think from SEAL Team 7. So it's kind of sitting in our uh, our livery, if you will. 
And they're like, well, we got to go after this guy who's a bad dude. Um, I think he's a financier kind of guy. And he, he, he was giving a lot of money to bad guys. So we're going to go wrap him up. But the neighborhood was extremely vigilant. And anytime Americans pulled down this very um, channelized area, everybody got the alert. Everyone knew there were Americans there. And they were everybody to take off. So we're like, well, all right, that's cool. Let's get one of these vehicles to get this cool Opal. And let's drive to that guy's house. And if we see uh, his vehicle in the driveway, which is also an Opal, like a yellow one, uh, with a certain license plate, like if that's there, we toss out a chem light bundle of IR chem lights so no one else can see it. That's marking saying, hey, he's here. And then we'd go off, turn the corner, and kind of set a, uh, a catcher's mitt, if you will, for the actual assault force. So we rolled out. In this vehicle, I was carrying an AK-47, had my man dress on, and had that wrapped up. You know, in 04, we're probably like, oh, yeah, we're we're really blending in with our environment. Like, yeah, look at my big white ass right there. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. But we rolled like that. We had a, off you can see the top of the hood here. That's. Right? I was just about to ask about that. It looks like it's marked almost. It is. That's an IR chem light that was put on the roof because I had a communicator in the back seat that had an antenna going out the back window. Um, there's a SATCOM antenna and he had an AC-130 overhead just for us in case something happened. We were able to use the AC-130 to help uh, get out of that. But we had to disguise that too so no one could see that. And yeah, we, uh, we rolled down the road and we hadn't talked contingencies as well as we probably should have. This is our first time doing this. This is our first time in Iraq together. Um, we didn't talk about police checkpoints and we didn't talk about coalition checkpoints. So Those I'm are big rolling things. down. Oh, massive. Just <laughs> how did we not? But, uh, there's a lack, <laughs> lack of experience on our parts. So I'm rolling down the road and there's a Marine Corps column stopping everybody. And as I pull up, you know, get the, you know, Lance Corporal or private holding his M4 uh, M16 up at me. I just kind of take down my thing. I'm like, Hey bro, um, we're Americans. We're passing through here. Cool. And he just did not know what to say. And he never said anything to me. Just like stared at me, he lowered his rifle and just kind of stared at me. I'm like, Hey, can you please radio your entire unit and let them know that the Americans are coming by right now in this vehicle? He's like, shook his head, probably never told anyone anything. And then off we went down the road. I'm like, well, holy shit, because we about got shot at by some Marines, which has happened a lot. And then as we're going down the road, we're getting close to the target. And then there's a police checkpoint. Got two guys late at night, you know, having their uh, Turkish coffee or their tea. And they step out in the middle of the road and they're like, uh-oh, uh, do we stop? Do we go? Do we stop? Do we go? Because there's this early warning network and I can't trust these cops aren't telling the bad guy that we're here. And it's kind of like, I, I'm going mash that pedal. Uh, didn't hit him. He jumped out of the way, but he jumped in and grabbed his AK and started to point it at us as we drove by. Uh, I've had several friends shot doing that. Uh, nothing happened. Thankfully we got through that rolled to the guy's house. Bad guy's car was there, dropped the bundle, um, waited. They scooped him up. Uh, he had a lot of explosives in the house and some RPGs. And then that led us to a follow-on target. And then in the end, it was like, we're going to drive back with our convoy, who 
goes all night vision. And you can tell I'm dressed that way and don't have a helmet on, or I have not, nor do I have night vision. So they're like, just keep up. So I drove no night vision behind the entire convoy, hauling ass all the way back to Al-Assad, dressed like that. Uh, someone handed me a mono, uh, monocular. So just driving through the city, just like. Because uh, that's so oh, good uh, for depth perception. Oh, depth perception is amazing when you're like, looking through one eye. It's fantastic. But yeah, that was a, that's a longer story than I probably should have told about this one, but that was a, it's a unique experience. Just like, it, it's what you think of when you're a seal and you're going to war for the first time. You're like, let's grab an opal. Yeah. Let's uh, dress up like the locals. Yeah. No one's going to notice that. Uh, let's grab an AK too. I have my AK with me. I'm like, cool. This is going to be great. <laughs> I, I just want to point out that it, almost that scene exactly happened in the movie Navy Seals with Charlie Sheen. Except they stole a Mercedes, dressed exactly the same, but stole a Mercedes. Yeah, a bunch of white dudes with tactical gear and uh, yeah, just rolling around Beirut. Yep. It, you know, it, it worked out though. We we got our bad guy, and you know, it, was, it was a learning uh, learning point for us. Well, that's all that matters. All right, we got one more picture. I'm gonna have to shrink this one down. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah, so I don't think you and I have ever even really talked about this one. So let's move that in there and let's talk about this. That's Preacher School. So that was Preacher School out in... God, where in the hell were we? Some BFE Virginia out in the out in the boonies. I, Fort Lee or something like that. It was just a small place. It was a, a little tiny section owned by, owned by NSW. And these are door facades. So it's just a facade. They throw a door into it and they um, barricade it uh, in most diabolical ways. And we practice our repetitions through breaching doors. And that would start with a explosive charge, uh, typically something like a seven foot strip or ECT, something like that. Um, and then you'd start working through your manual and mechanical tools to get a positive breach and allow an entry team to go. And this one was funny to me because I remember pulling that um, metal sheathing off of the door to expose the styrofoam that's on the inside. Those are called fire doors. They all have a rating. They could be 30, 60, 90 minute doors. And what the idea is, if there's a fire in your house, your door shut, you have that many minutes based upon its rating for the fire to not enter via the doorway. And there's just plenty of pictures that the fire department puts out about how closing your doors and that saves lives. Um, so when you blow that and peel that back and you get a spark on the styrofoam, it's extremely flammable. It is massively flammable. And I remember this the first time the door lit and it just went up and just kind of pulled back my sledgehammer and looked back at the instructor that's on the left-hand side. And he's like, just stares at me. He's like, what are you waiting for? I'm like, oh, so we're not stopping because there's an inferno in front of me. Super. <laughs> And I just thought that was the coolest thing. I'm like, oh, oh, great. And I grabbed that sledgehammer and started beating the, the crap out of that door. Got a positive entry. And there's still flames were kind of licking all around the thing. And they're like, make entry. You're like, oh, okay. So I have to go through this. Cool. You know, I'm, I'm wearing regular camis. There's nothing flame retardant about those things. Not at all. No, it was fantastic. I just remember that thing lighting up. And his look, he's like, get in there. I'm like, Okay. Okay, I guess I'm going through this door. And I think that's what really, that was one of the things that really cued me into why I love breaching and why I should be a breacher. It's just like, oh, cool, flaming door. I'm going to go through this thing. Watch this. And we had a few guys that just uh, uh, reckless abandon, just kind of used their body and plowed through that flaming uh, 
door and just open it that way. I'm like, okay, use the tools next time. Don't use your body. Use, use a, a Halligan. Uh, well, we call it a hooligan, but use, use one of the many tools at your disposal. Let's not use our entire body to go through a flaming structure. But, well, yeah. I got to tell you, so let's point out Dutton's has been in the stream the whole time. He's been talking, uh, not really a question, but he's been putting his comments in Peter Ostrowski. Thank you so much for being wow. here. Uh, you have an amazing story and your son, Jack and the Marines, JP Swanson said that he is donating two badass boxes. So, um, That's said, great charity that he's going to donate now. All right, guys, if you have any questions, Get them in right now because we got about five minutes left and we're going to get some more questions in right now while we're waiting. If there's any questions that are going to come in and I'm super disappointed that your sister still has not sent one in. Uh, I'm going to blame her on this. Okay. <laughs> oh, she wrote multiple times. It's badassboxes.org, and then money and .org, .org, .org. So badassboxes.org is the actual one. So the the kind gentleman that said he's going to donate the badass boxes, it's .org, and she'll probably tell me five or six more times. He has already sent a donation. He just sent a message oh, that fantastic. said, I've already sent a donation to Badass and reached out to them via email to hopefully help raise some funds here in North Carolina for it too. That's fantastic. I mean, we have guys that are out of North Carolina, out of Fort Bragg, that are recipients of Badass Boxes guys from all over the country that are deployed at these remote locations that just no one is people aren't aware that we have troops overseas and I don't know how many countries it's probably in the nineties. We have guys there and they don't have access to good food and good chow and good, uh, good amenities or basics like soap and all that. So, yeah. Well, thank you very much, JP, for doing that. Peter, thank you so much for your comments. Dutton's of course, always, if you have a question, send them in. The last things we want to go over, of course, with the show, we sent you some police coffee. Mm. You, you put up your video. Let's talk about police coffee real quick before I go into my whole spiel about them. What you think? I was a big fan. I, uh, I just like to see the different coffees and I like to see, uh, something that's more craft than your basic Pete's or Starbucks. Uh, I don't, I don't even buy Starbucks. I don't really, I don't, uh, give them my money, but I'll buy Pete's. But when I got something that's more craft by police coffee, I really appreciated that. Uh, tried every one of them thought they're all great. I'm a very, big fan of the dark roast. So anything that's like a super dark roast, that's what I did my video with. It's pretty funny because I went out there often to, you know, a place I like to hike around here and hang out. I've never done a video. I'm not a content creator. I don't do those things, but I wanted to make sure I was be able to give a good shout out. I just kind of sat down in this place that they call the Elven Forest nearby, broke out my coffee. I'm like, great, let's do this. I didn't bring a coffee pot or a French press or an AeroPress. I had nothing with me. I'm like, damn it. So I ended up actually making cowboy coffee. So I basically just threw some, some of uh, police coffee into a, into a pot, threw in the hot water, let it sit, threw in some cold water to get the grain to kind of die down a little bit and poured myself a cup, made my little video as a shout out to them. And it was amazing. I was like, Oh, this is, I, I didn't really make it the way it should have been intended with a, with a press of sorts, but it was really good. And I really appreciate what those guys do. And just anytime we can support our law enforcement brothers, because uh, Lord knows guys don't get enough love. All right, we got a couple more questions that came in. Here you go. I'm not going to judge because this is a cop question because Peter, of course, was <laughs> a, a federal for a long time. Oh, uh, it's connected to worse. coffee. Okay. Are you ready? Mm. What's your favorite donut? 
He says his is anything coconut. So what's your favorite donut? I don't like donuts. <laughs> I, I hate to disappoint. Um, you know, your palate changes when you get older. And I like, get it. Oh, I get it, man. I'm going in... down a donut. I'm just like, that sounds absolutely awful uh, to me. But once in a while, I go to a kid's party around here and there's like a dozen Krispy Kremes and I can have half of a regular glazed donut with a cup of coffee. I'm like, all right, that's good. I can do that. But just to elaborate more on his question, because I, I think it needs uh, more addressing. I went to a explosive school uh, and I can't tell you where or who it was with because those were um, both classified, but it was a school um, working on different explosive techniques with different materials. Okay. But the first morning after breakfast, you go into your classroom and you're hanging out and they had just two dozen donuts, Dunkin' Donuts and coffee. And like every seal walked past that with an upturned nose. It's like donuts. We're putting that in this body. It's a temple for God's sake. Go into class and then like hour later, the donuts are still there. And then finally one dude is like, has a donut after that they were gone because everyone waited for the one guy and we chastised him like you fat ass <laughs> wait and let me grab one real quick and ate all the donuts and we did that for two weeks straight so it was like one ego one guy there you go there and be the sacrificial lamb he's eating the donut he's a fat ass i'm not even though i ate the same donut afterwards I'm like, <laughs> but yeah so back in the day like that's i'd go down to couple uh donuts uh chocolate was probably my favorite though chocolate glaze my partner's got a snack shack in our office and uh he sells for guys that are out working all night and stuff and uh everyone complains this is no bullshit every single time he comes back from costco everyone complains and asks him why the hell do you buy honey buns uh because they're horrible they're the first fucking thing gone every single time Oh yeah. Oh, hundred percent. As much as we uh, sneer because we're supposed to be these elite athletes and these, uh, you know, pinnacles of fitness. Like, I was about to well, say, I'm, I'm far from elite. I, I try and get in the gym and work out, but I'm far from elite. All right. JP says that he's receding his donation because Krispy Kreme's <laughs> rule. So, all right. He has a question though. He said, can you talk about the importance of supporting active duty to hopefully prevent some of the post duty issues that arise? It seems equally important to him for the active duty side. It, it is, um, and I don't know if, how far the news travels, but we just had uh, the commanding officer, SEAL Team 1, committed suicide. And, you know, knew him personally, knew him well. Uh, and, you know, I hate, it's so cliche when you're like, I would never would expect this of this guy, or that's not his personality. I, I can't believe that happened to him, but we say that way too often. Um, but, but he was that guy. He's like, God, this guy was just amazing like gregarious as could be just fun to be around and you you see the name and like hey uh the skipper killed himself and you're like look at the name you're like holy shit um so your question we don't do enough to discuss that and that may go back to my hatred for um bureaucracies because what's bureaucracy going to do to stymie the flow of uh, suicides or alcoholism or hate crimes or anything else is you get a, a lesson so everyone gets hauled in in uniform. You sit down in a big room and there's a guest speaker and they talk about, you know, suicide or something like that. They're usually not very entertaining. And you realize you got about 15 things you should be doing right now and not sitting in this lecture. So you're not really tuned in. 
Um, so it, it's an attempt to check a box and say, yes, we, we gave a speech on, uh, you know, mental health and suicide and that's it. And no one leaves there going, man, I really ought to think about my life and maybe get some help because your schedule is so booked. That's not what you're doing. You sit in there because you have to, the second you leave, you're doing something else. And then truly it's that bureaucracy is like, yep, check, talked about suicide. What's next? Um, so there isn't a robust apparatus to help our active duty guys, even though there should be. And there is a fear in the communities that I've served in where you're not going to come forward and say, I'm having a mental health issue. You just aren't going to do that because one, you might just get overlooked. And I've had a, a very close buddy who just is screaming from the rooftops right now. I'm not in a good place and I cannot be here. It's kind of like, yeah, we'll, we'll let you know. Um, we'll take that under advisement and just, uh, we'll see, we'll get to you. Um, I think the retired guys to a degree have a better apparatus in place because one, they're away from that bureaucracy. They don't have to have the fear of someone questioning their mental health anymore. Not saying everyone does it, but you're now out of the military and to go see a, a psychiatrist or to go use plant medicine or go on some sort of shamanic journey or just go to a hospital and see a therapist or something like that. Um, there's not a stigma, but when you're in, there's maybe still a stigma we haven't beat down. And I don't know what the solution to that is. We don't do a good job of our guys who are currently serving to give them that kind of environment. Yeah, we've got chaplains. Not everybody's religious or feels like they want to talk to a chaps. Um, a lot of guys that are still in want to just power through. Like, well, I'll address it when I get out. And then it gets to be so overwhelming, they take their own life before they get out. So I don't know what the solution would be to that, but I can tell you the military does a poor job in monitoring our own troops' mental health. I would, I would definitely agree with you on that. And, and I, I've said it on the show numerous times. I think it's even worse in the law enforcement and first responder community. I just don't think that it's ever been, I don't think it's ever been a serious issue. I know that sounds like a weird way to say it, but I don't think it's ever been a serious issue. And I think within like the past year or it might even be shorter than that. I'm not sure the time frame. three Chicago police officers have taken their own lives within you know a very short time frame so there's definitely something there to it that we're not approaching and just like you said yeah we're not seeing it maybe on the backside. it might be on active duty where either we're not picking up on the signs we're not paying attention to the signs or we're just it just seems to be a check the box kind of thing yeah and you know uh, there's a lot of border patrol that live in my neighborhood given my location to my proximity to the border those guys I, I feel for those guys and it's not as many violent encounters as like a big city SWAT team, I don't think, or just a beat cop, but it's just this constant flow and this lack of support from anything. And just, it's so overwhelming for a lot of these guys. And of course, yeah, there, there are violent encounters, but a lot of the guys I see that have issues right now are the border patrol guys. And, you know, part of it is you, you don't have a good sense for what you're doing with your life. You're, you're doing this job that, the politicians don't want you to do and you're kind of being stymied at every turn and the flow is incessant I mean, you stop five guys ten more guys go right by you 
and uh, I think there's this this lack of uh, you know an ownership for your career. It's like you have to be able to. A lot of people need a purpose that ikigao again, you know, to like to be satisfied, and they aren't getting that, and I think that's causing a lot of issues. We're like, I don't know why I go to work. I don't know why I get up. I don't. None of this is for anything, you know. Which is a weird trend because we were seeing it on the backside for that twenty years. Now we're seeing it on the front side before the retirement even happens. That there's mm-hmm. there's no quote unquote end in sight now. Yeah, you know what's really weird is we've lost multiple commanding officers from SEAL teams due to suicide. And like, okay, what what has changed? What's different? What are we doing wrong? Um, not to be a, a Monday morning quarterback, but I think if you look to twenty plus years of deploying to war, I think you have to start there and see. You know, that's, that's unprecedented. You, I mean, from the time I joined the service to the time I left, that was war. And, you know, it's funny, the military doesn't seem to recognize that when you have a guy that maybe he's getting in trouble multiple times, he's younger, younger kid type thing, you know, he's getting in fights and all these different things. And the military just right there wants to burn him. Like, let's, you know, let's, we're going to send him to Admiral's Mass. We're going to take his trident. We're going to all these punitive things. Like, stop and take a look for a minute. What, where's this kid been? Where's he deployed to? Like, okay. He did Fallujah. He did Baghdad. And he's been in Afghanistan twice. You're like, okay, let's, let's look through that prism before we castigate any sort of any, it's before we do anything else. Look through his prism. The fact he's been doing this for this long, you know, similar to Eddie Gallagher, you know, it's like you asked him to go to war for that long and he did well at it. The second there's the inkling of something wrong or there's an allegation, you're like, fuck that guy, get him, get him out, send him to prison. Like, do you realize what you asked him to do for the last 20 years? Just, I mean, not to sugarcoat what we do for a living, we kill people. That's our job. We do it well. So to, to throw people under the bus like that, when you ask them to do something horrific in a way for 20 years and then something slightly askew from what you want or it's it's off from the culture you're trying to establish and you just want to you just want to burn the guy and that's i think that's part of it too with guys that are getting out and they're seeing this it's not good for their mental status and i agree and i think it goes back to that thing that you and i talked about where it's not necessarily that first line or second line supervisor but it's that guy looking well, if I don't do anything now, what's that guy above me going to do? And then what's the guy above him going to do? And it's going to all roll down on me. And and instead of helping this guy, I'm just going to hurt him because I'm going to protect myself and put myself in this cocoon to kind of, you know, avoid the entire situation, kind of turn a blind eye to it. Yep. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, I, all the guys that they retire from law enforcement and from the military that I know, I'm like, when you're retiring, I'm like, just realize they don't care about you at all don't think they do my buddy just retired from uh, a large department in texas and that's one of the things i told him like you know they don't care about you right they don't care the second you said i'm retiring and they're like his supervisor's disgusted that he you know is going to be shorthanded like well but can't you work these days he's like no these are my papers i'm leaving he's like really putting me in a spot here bro I'm like really after 20 plus years of service on the SWAT team, you know, he was there for the, you know, the, the BLM shooting. He's seen a lot of shit. And now you got a supervisor like, oh, how dare you? 
retire and leave me shorthanded. I was like, bro, like the system, the agency and your supervisor doesn't care about you. Like you care about yourself. Your wife cares about you. That's it. So remember that when people say something to you, something derogatory when you're leaving something like, I can't believe you're leaving me like this. I'm like that person doesn't care about you. They're thinking about themselves. Absolutely. That's how it is. That's how it is when you leave any bureaucracy. They don't care about you. Absolutely. And, and when you get down to the nuts and bolts, that's the most important people you care, your wife cares, your kids care. That's where it's going to end up. So, all right, we got a couple more comments to knock out and then we're going to get out of here. JP says, hopefully maybe badass boxes could also add some words of encouragement in with the goods. Maybe not the fleshlight, but that's okay too. Absolutely. Um, you know, getting handwritten notes is pretty cool from overseas. Um, Sometimes, you know, like it, it, it wears the novelty wear wear off after a while, except for when you get the like the random fourth grader sends you something. He's like, I hope you're killing a lot of bad guys. Have a very safe time. I hope you don't die. I'm like, this kid's a legend. This kid this, gets it. Look at this motherfucker. This guy's great. Um, but yeah, if getting messages from people that actually know the guys would probably be a really good idea where you can just add in just something, Hey, from whoever, Hey, love what you guys are doing. And I hope you really enjoyed this one item you asked for. Maybe it's something one off. You're like, this guy wanted something one off. Like, man, I hope you really enjoyed this. Give me some feedback and you know, create a dialogue. I think that's a good idea to be able to do something like that. Um, but by and large overseas, when you get kind of random notes from people you don't know, you're kind of like, Oh, that's very nice. All right, cool. Yeah. Um, so I, if it was something that was pertinent to the people, just like we customize the boxes for the individual, if those notes can be more or less customized for them, I think that would be a good idea. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Org, not .com. Sorry, Andrea. .org. <laughs> she didn't. She didn't even question. So we're good. We're we're you guys oh, are even. Horrible. All right. So Dom says, hello. Good evening, folks. Hey, Dom. Thanks for joining in. Uh, Peter Ostrowski says it's got to be cumulative, like a cumulative traumatic burden that they carry. Uh, and it, it's true. It's that uh, I, I uh, allostatic load where it just builds over time and stuff. I, I, I think that's definitely something that we're looking into now. JP says, amen, Peter. Uh, I don't know that there's an answer. I think that we're definitely trying to move in the right direction with uh, the talk that's just on the table now that was never there before. And, and guys like you that are, that are putting it out there and saying, man, I've been there. I know what you're going through. Talk to me and let's figure this out. Yeah. And they're absolutely right. There is that cumulative effect, although it's not the only possibility. There's definitely, it could be a one-time thing, but with the vast majority of people we see, it's, it's, it's 20 years of, you know, witnessing the horrors and, and, and something else that goes into that is the TBI getting that traumatic brain injury, getting 20 years of explosive breaching, 50 cows, Carl Gustafs, you know, all of that. In addition to what you see is just this detrimental effect to your entire body and your psyche. So yeah, he's definitely right. There's a, this, you can only take so much, you know, you only fill up your truck so much with dirt until it's just going to start spilling out the sides. And that's what unfortunately we're seeing. So, you know, it'd be good to have something mental health wise where, come back from deployment and offload some of that dirt out of the truck for a while. We can fill it back up and keep, keep the load manageable if that's a thing. Um, and you know, they try they, you know, we have a, when you come back from deployment, you stop off in a, uh, uh, 
oh, what do you call it? That decompression stop is what we call them. So you come back from Afghanistan or Iraq, they'd fly into Heidelberg, pick up in a bus, they'd have pizza and beers, go back, you talk to a shrink, um, you talk to a sleep therapist, and you get a couple briefs, and then you're set off into Heidelberg for fun and just go out and just decompress. That was good. Um, at least got some people talking, but I think a lot more could be done. It's the follow-ups, I think. And, and I think, just like I said, it's like, People need to be thinking more in those lines when something bad happens to a guy. He's, he's acting out of sorts. He's doing something counter to the culture. And you're like, where's he been? What's he done? Has he been seeking help? Let's look there first before we just, you know, throw stones. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. I'm so glad that you ended out the year with me here, Dave. Uh, I'm so I'm, glad you invited me. Yeah, I'm so happy that you're here. I, I'm so happy that, about the stuff that we got to talk about and just kind of get to see each other before this year ends. Let's tell people where they can find you or where they can look into Tier 1. We already know Badass Boxes, but let's throw one more out there for them and just let them know everywhere that they can get a hold of you and help out your organizations. It's funny because last time we did the podcast, you, you asked me the same thing. I'm like, uh, I think our website's this. And then you had our Instagram, our Facebook, you had everything lined out. I'm like, oh, thank God. You, thank God you're squared away and you helped me out. <laughs> it's the same thing here. So we got badassboxes.org and then we have tier1outdoors.com. We also have an Instagram page, which I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, because I know you're probably staring at it, but it's like tier1 underscore outdoors underscore. You just got to uh, put in tier one. It'll take you right to the Instagram uh, I run that more or less. So it's, it's me going out and just doing certain things and just showing people like, here's what we're doing. We're getting outdoors. This is, you know, some of our animals we've uh, been able to, to harvest. Here's some of our fish that we've been able to pull out of the ocean here. Just a bunch of happy veterans. So uh, it's not, uh, you know, again, I'm not a content creator, but I do like to show pictures of what we're doing on the Instagram. Uh, just letting people know, where their donations to tier one outdoors goes and what we're actually serving and what we're trying to do. Like I said, it's not a bunch of buddies going out trying to, you know, shoot an elk or, or a deer or go fish for help. It, it's, it's building a tribe to create a robust support network to make sure our guys are getting help both once they retire and while they're active duty. And like, you know, like our, our question uh, was, you know, about active duty guys, you know, the network's not there for them as well. So hopefully we're able to supplement what is available by creating this network and this tribe for them to, to reach out to. Well, uh, like I said, tier one, you just put it in Instagram. You can find them there. Tier one outdoors.com badassboxes.org. Uh, hopefully Alaska's on for this year because that seems to be the best one. There you go. Uh, Alaska's and, and you know, it's so funny every time you go to Alaska, you uh, come out of your shell because yeah. you're not a content creator, but you post so much stuff while you're in a, more than any other time of the year. And I don't know if that's someone encouraging you or if you're just doing it, but that is when you really come out of your shell. So I'm glad to hear that Alaska will be on and we'll make sure we push everyone in that direction while the trip's going on. So you, you'd like to hear this, that uh, my wife, when I send her pictures from Alaska, she's like, there's your happy face. That's what it is. I get this, the more natural smile. I, I smile plenty enough, I guess, but it's that natural smile. So I, it's just, it's the, the time we spend up there. And I just, it, it lends itself towards me sharing more. Cause I'm just like, this is, you know, this is what Valhalla I hope looks like. But uh, we do have two trips planned this year. 
and one is to the Silvertip Lodge, and that is owned by uh, Jeremy and Andrea Anderson. Andrea's brother was Brad Kavner, and he was my best buddy that was killed in a training accident. So we're going to go to their lodge with Tier 1, and I'm going to bring service members who were friends with Brad and just kind of bring that community up to their lodge, and we're going to go uh, float uh, down the river catching massive Silvertip salmon. So Silver Tip uh, Lodge up there, um, can't remember the exact location on that one, but those guys do amazing things. They work with challenged athletes um, uh, in the wintertime. So they take uh, amputees out skiing and snowboarding. And then in the summertime, they guide for Silver Tip fishing. So if anyone has a chance to check them out, and then we'll be doing our big halibut trip up to uh, uh, Treetops Lodge. So cannot wait. And, yeah, you'll see a lot of content come out of me. All right. Uh, one question before I do my whole thing. Uh, what's your opinion on ayahuasca treatments? Having not done it, I can't speak to it fully, but the people I know who have done it have changed their perspective entirely, and it's saved lives, 100% saved lives. I, I'm very much for anyone that's doing anything with uh, you know, DM, uh, 5-DMT or ayahuasca, uh, psilocybin, THC, any of those things done in a deliberate manner, I think, is possibly one of the things that's going to help preserve our law enforcement, our firefighters, and our soldiers and sailors coming back from overseas. Because I've seen massive, you know, shifts in people's personality for the better every time. It's one of those things just like, I don't think this guy's going to be alive next year. He gets the treatment, he goes and he does his exploration, he goes on a journey, and then it is night and day. I was just in the airport in Kansas, it was in Wichita, and I ran into a seal I know. Wildest thing, running into a guy in Wichita, Kansas, that you know. And he was an angry person before. I did not like him. We did not get along. Uh, would, you know, multiple times actually wanted to, you know, possibly fight him. Just, you know, it was that kind of, we didn't, we didn't see eye to eye and we saw each other and it was a big hug in the airport. Yeah, we're both out now. So it was like, you know, whatever, whatever happened in the past, I don't give a shit. But he's like, man, if, you know, if you've gone down to Mexico and done any of these treatments, I'm like, no, but he's like, I have, and it's remarkable. I'm like, I can see it. I can see your, your energy. And like, I can see it all. It's written on your face that this is beneficial. And it just, it, it, it helps so many people. So yeah, the people that are getting out, the people that are allowed to like seek some sort of treatment with, with that. And I think you'll see amazing results. All right, guys, thank you so much for coming here. Spending this last show of the year, 2022, 2023 has some huge things on the way. I'm so excited to tell you guys what's coming up. I'm not going to do it tonight. You're going to have to hold on until 2023. But there's some massive, massive conversations that are going to be happening. January, March is already uh, on the calendar. So we're January through March already with guests that are going to come on and tell their story. Because as I always tell you guys, everyone's got a story to tell. The best stories are true. Now, if you guys want to find me, you know where you can always locate me at. You can find me on Instagram at the DTD Podcast. You can find me on YouTube at the DTD Podcast. And you can find me on Facebook where all these conversations are in video form, like this live one that you're watching right now. But the one-stop shop, dtdpodcast.net. It's got audio, video, pictures of Dave that we talked about. It's got their stories. It's got their links. 
you can find out anything you want to know about these guests right there and get in contact with them. Now, let's talk about our sponsor, Police Coffee, like we did a little earlier at policecoffee.com. Now, I talk about them every week, and I tell you the flavors that are coming out, the seasons that are changing. Police Officer Coffee is fantastic. The flavors, the regular, the dark roast, no matter what you want from them, it's coming out good. Police Officer uh, Coffee is, you know, probably some of the best there is out there. I would say the best out there. Police Coffee is an officer-owned business dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends, and their shift as soon as they're made to provide you with the freshest coffee available. Every batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant. Their specialty coffees do not waste one drop, and like I said, it's pumpkin spice season, eggnog season, peppermint mocha. They got them all. I've drank them. They're fantastic. You should get your hands on them. Their coffee's some of the best you'll find, but it also helps serve an important cause, giving back to our community. 50% of their profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. And if you go to policecoffee.com, put in the code DJK10, and you get 10% off your order. Don't hesitate to go to them. Get on the subscription service, and you'll never have a bad cup of coffee again. Guys, that's going to be it for this year, this week, and this story. You're going to have to join us next year. That's Dave. I'm DJ. This has been the show for this year. We're out of here, guys. Make sure you share, like, and subscribe. See you later, 2023. Bye. How's it going, man?